19th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's always hard at work designing the ultimate green two-drop spec for your portfolio. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as always, is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, James. Did you come up with a better branding opportunity for me for my Twitter handle? I, I haven't developed anything yet that I'm super excited about, so I'm not going to put anything on the table until I think you'll be impressed. Okay. Well, I, I wait with bated breath. Uh, glad to be here and looking forward to sharing all sorts of valuable information with everybody. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, small rays of sunshine in the plague lands this week. Oh yeah? You think? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I told you about how uh, some of my eBay orders were going lost, uh, basically disappearing into the void of the postal system in the era of COVID-19. I do recall the conversation. It made me very nervous because I sold a lot more Magic cards in the last week than I have in a while, and I'm worried about all of them. A lot of our Canadian members uh, in the Pro Trader Discord that tend to ship to the U.S. on a semi-regular basis were much in the same boat and equally concerned. Uh, I did have a couple clients get in touch today and tell me that their cards landed finally three weeks late Hmm. um, and offer to pay me uh, repay me for the stuff i'd already refunded so uh, seems like uh, my suspicions that things were massively delayed as opposed to completely lost uh, seem to be playing out uh, about as well as one could hope in the current circumstances okay well i will hope that all of my cards arrive as well it's good to hear for you um, I I would I think you fairly categorize that as a small ray of sunshine. Now we just need to track down that thousand dollar order we have incoming from Europe. Yeah. Oh yeah, I had honestly just forgotten about it <laughs> until you asked, and then you asked, and I said it hadn't shown up yet, and then I forgot about it again. I I think the last this is a group buy that a whole bunch of our members went in on, and those there was basically two shipping options at the time well over a month ago uh you could pay i think it was like 20 bucks or something and get fast shipping that would arrive within the week or you could roll the dice on slow shipping that could take anywhere from two to four weeks depending on where exactly you were and how the border situation was well you and i were like wow it'd be like 13 bucks a piece but we don't need to do that we don't we're not in any rush to get these cards so we opted for slow shipping sure enough all the fast shipping people got their stuff before the COVID hammer dropped and all the rest of us seem to be in the the, the borderlands, <laughs> the COVID borderlands, where packages from abroad just disappear into a void. And I haven't heard of anybody in the last 10 days or so having one pop up. So 
you know, we'll probably give that another two, three, four weeks and then start to get concerned. Well, it's one of those. Yeah, we th- we timed that just perfectly and that it couldn't have been any worse. Um, I-, I guess it's one of those. What, what can you really do about it? Like, you're not going to call, you know, a small Eastern European nation postal service and complain that your package is missing. You just <laughs> you, you just kind of forget yeah. that it's there and you hope that it shows up on your doorstep one day at some point in the future. I'm not sure what other recourse we would have. Unless you were like a big Kafka fan in college and have long awaited your chance to delve into some kind of Byzantine socialist bureaucratic nightmare. <laughs> you want to you want to go call 17 different desks trying to find the right person to give you the slightest modicum of information about where your package might have ended up. Yeah, and the answer is going to be we don't know and it's probably an honest answer. So, like I don't know. I'm not I'm not looking for an excuse to travel to Europe over a $200 worth of magic cards. So, I'm just going to have to settle with hope that it shows up. Yeah, if that's the worst thing that that comes out of COVID for me and mine, then so be it. Uh, best of luck to us and everyone else involved. And I'm sure there are plenty of other people who have had international packages just fade into the other. Yeah. Frankly, if yeah. I lose 200 some odd dollars worth of magic cards in the mail to all this, even if, you know, it, it, COVID aside, I've never really had any problems with any cards getting lost before. So I can deal with that minor, relatively minor loss over the course of my entire magic purchasing history. Truth. Um, All right. So what's on the agenda tonight? Uh, Surprisingly, we have uh, a new format, new last month or two. Um, Segment one, our MTGO metagame week in review, standard, pioneer, modern, and legacy to check in on with some updates soon to come. Segment two, our top paper movers, cards that have moved the most in price this past week in paper. Uh, No shortage, really, this week or the last several weeks. Um, We also check in on the top MTGO movers to see what's happening over on Moto. Uh, Our topic of the week, we'll jump into the ban announcement. The ban announcement announcement. I don't even know if we can call it a ban announcement. A banned and restricted list announcement announcement. Yeah. Uh, really awful decision-making in that regard. And uh, we'll also talk about possibly some of the uh, play design social debates that have popped up. You've seen Rosewater and Forsyth specifically pose some questions to the general magic community. So we'll we'll chat about that because we have a platform and why not. Uh, following that are MTGO cards to watch. We have a card on the list this week to look at for Moto. And finally, we'll wrap up the week talking about our paper cards to watch. And we've got a pretty good slate here this week. Uh, so let's hop in here at the top. I see that companions have had their had their way with the formats again. I see eight companion decks in standard, uh, six in pioneer, six in modern, and seven in legacy. Yeah, so we have, from coming out of last weekend on Magic Online, we have the Standard Challenge, the Pioneer Challenge, the Modern Super Qualifier, and a Legacy Challenge. And indeed, uh, in Standard, you had only one Lurus. Lurus, uh, you know, we've spoken before about how Lurus is clearly more busted the further back in Magic's history you go, because the odds are that the older the format, the lower the average casting cost. Yeah. Of course, Lurus has the restriction. So... One Lurus stack in standard, 
for Yorion decks, Yorion is just trampling all over that format. Jeskai, Yorion, Luka builds are just crushing. Uh, one Karuga and one Obosh. Um, I do have a janky Obosh deck built on Magic Arena. Super fun to hit people for two with Llanowar Elves and smash them for six with Lightning Bolts and so forth. Um, not that I get to do that on Arena since Bolt's not legal there, but uh, just doubling all of your, your damage is fun. Mm-hmm. Over in Pioneer, we have three Yorion, two Lurus, and a Zerda taking control. And in the Modern Super Qualifier, it was three Yorion and three Lurus, and then two decks that uh, somehow forgot to bring their companion. Mm-hmm. In Legacy, five Lurus and seven Zerda. Subtotal is 27 out of 32 top 8 decks across those four tournaments, 84%, with an even split between 11 Yorion, 11 Lurus, 3-0, 1 Obosh, and a Karuga. Yeah, it is pretty nasty still. Um, Not surprised that Lurus isn't ruling standard the way he is the other formats, but you you hit the nail on the head when you talked about the average converted monocost of those formats. Still a companion format, though, with Yorion, and the pros are more than willing to tell anyone who will listen how miserable it has been over there in Standard Land. Sam Black brought up an interesting point that um, they were kind of talking about maximum deck size, and there was a various questions, but you know, kind of what came out of it was, well, I wonder if even after Yorion's gone, we'll decide that you are supposed to play more than 80 like even without Yorion, is it better to play more than 60 cards? Which has been, I would say, the most possibly the most sacred of cows in magic deck building. Sure. Possible. Like it's hard to think of a rule, anything that is more of a hard and fast rule that isn't actually codified in the rules of magic. You know, if you show up with 61 cards, people think you're like, oh, this guy's no. Think about how little you think of someone if you find out their competitive deck has 61 cards, right? Yeah, and and that's me. Like I've I've tabled 61 card decks many times. <laughs> I table I table 41 card decks in limited all the time, uh, especially in Ikoria. In Ikoria, in certain decks, I find you have a very strong chance of dragging out the game and decking yourself. Especially if you're casting one of the big spells that draws four or draws five, uh, like the Jeskai uh, seven mana spell or uh, Boon of the Wishgiver, for instance. And I've I've run forty one forty two in Ikoria, and I'm just a Johnny, right? Like I want to do. I like utility. I like options. I, I don't care about the 0.8 percent edge it gives me in the game to cut the final card. Don't care about the present, like whether or not you think I'm serious. Don't care about whether you not you respect my discipline. I'm just going to table what I feel like tabling. Uh, I I mean, in limited, it's always it's a little different. I think there are I have seen valid t- opinions on playing more than forty in limited, especially if you think it's going to be a game or a scenario where you deck you get decked, which definitely happens in limited games, even limited games whose win condition isn't supposed to be decking each other. So. You know, I don't think it's as big of a deal there, but I mean, in constructed formats, it'd be like, especially standard, it just seems like, why would you ever play more than 60? But in any case, it seemed interesting that Yorian may open the door to some uh, more dynamic deck building than we've seen in a while. And Sam Black implied that the limit may be um, the quality of your mana base, essentially. Like, maybe your deck is supposed to be more than 60 cards up until you run out of enough good lands to support it, and you should stop there. 
I don't know. It's a, it's a fascinating point, but. So speaking of novel decks, first place in the standard challenge was a Luris deck, but not one of the ones people were talking about up until recently. This is the ultimate Jeskai cycling draft deck. This deck is basically all the cards that make for a fantastic limited deck in Ikoria. And you just play four of all of them, more or less. So four Drawneth Healer, four Drawneth Stinger, four Flourishing Fox, which you're hoping to drop real early and go to town. If they kill a fox, you're hoping to segue into Valiant Rescuer and try to flood the board with tokens. And when all of that goes astray, you try to refill your hand with Boon of the Wishgiver. Uh, You might clear a a key card out of their hand with Memory Leak, except you can't because you're not running any black. So I guess that's just a one-mana cycler here. Frostville Ambushes, Starting Development, and Footfall Crater all more or less are mostly just there to be cycled, and then you're going to finish up the game with the ridiculously busted Zenith Flare for 10 or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a cool It's a cool deck. Uh, you know, I'm inclined to want to talk about Luca and what opportunities may lie on the other side of September when the formats change and what have you, but I just... It feels like a trap to be talking about what cards in paper might be interesting in two or three months, not only because the format may change significantly. We don't know what bands may be in the pipeline and, you know, precedent has been set that they will definitely make changes in standard. So there is no reassurance whatsoever that Yorion will be legal. Also, no reassurance that anyone will be playing Paper Magic in a major way in September. So all we can do at the moment is just appreciate the decks and what's happening in the format but uh not a lot to go on at least for standard right now yeah people in our discord have been discussing about you know luca should hit a a low say you know three to six weeks from now because that pent-up icoria demand is going to get fed finally icoria is coming out this weekend uh, Mm. three days from now if you're listening to this on friday you basically could be picking up curbside at your lgs and getting your hands on some boxes to crack and that's going to move some cardboard, but four to six weeks out when there's no place to play those cards, because okay. I have every confidence that uh, the gathering is on hiatus, whether or not parts of the economy are opening up. I don't think 30-person uh, social, 30-person plus social gaming events are going to be <laughs> some of the things that are going to see widespread ado- re-adoption anytime soon. No. So... So cards like Luca should fall pretty low yeah. because there's just no immediate need for them. Now, there are shenanigans going on with Luca in Modern uh, alongside Plain Band Accomplice that we're going to talk in a, in a little bit about. Um, so I, I like Luca's chances longer term, but it's a weird spot because Fires of Invention feels like a real problem in Standard. Uh, it is even worse than how people were looking at Wilderness Reclamation when the Wilderness Reclamation Nexus of Fate decks were running rampant last year. Mm-hmm. And it's just doing so much work. When you look it into like an Agent of Treachery and start flickering your opponent's lands with Yorion, I mean, flickering your Yorion to steal additional lands and then other permanents from your opponent, <laughs> it just gets out of control so quickly and demoralizes them mm-hmm. um, to the point where nobody wants to play. And I suspect that if this format was in a normal state of affairs, fires would get be getting targeted relatively quickly here. Mm-hmm. But in this situation, I could see them just leaving it alone, just letting it be bad. <laughs> 
for a while as people online can just refocus on other formats. And fires might catch a ban somewhere late spring, early summer, or they might just leave it alone and worry about it come, you know, the regrouping for Paper Magic maybe in the fall, maybe in the winter. So, I don't know. I, I don't want to touch any of these cards from a standard spec perspective. Like, standard specs are back to being dead for me. Yeah. Um, but ones that are multi-format, I'm certainly looking for entry points. And there's all, all sorts of stuff in Ikoria that is primarily casual slash EDH that should get extremely cheap here. And looking for, you know, good deals on anime art triome foils and so forth uh, will certainly be on my agenda. I just realized the other day, the triomes are not specific to the collector booster boxes. They are part of the anime showcase cards that are in regular booster boxes, which means you don't need to be chasing them down in the Japanese collector boxes. You can just get those in Russian booster boxes. Hmm. That's nice to know. So Russian foil... Anime art triomes are probably going to be relatively rare, and I would guess that the Russian vendors will be extra desperate to unload. <laughs> okay, heading into the summer, all of that may be true, but how do you get it? How do you get it? <laughs> how do you how <laughs> do you get the car true. from Russia to you? <laughs> well, yes, this is this is absolutely. The, hopefully, you have a shipping partner in Europe. You can order them on MCM or whatever when they get real low. And then just let them pile up somewhere safely. It does yeah. seem like the greatest challenge here is, or I'm sorry, the greatest opportunity is going to be snagging uh, EDH relevant cards from Ikoria and I guess probably Throneville Drain when they kind of bottom out as a result of losing their standard relevance, but people still not being back to the tables too much. Um, we might see some real deep dips there that could recover a year or two down the road when, you know, I presumably people return to social spaces and are able to make use of them. So that seems like probably the angle there. Um, and I agree. And just to add, uh, another angle on this is even if some variety of U S states, you know, declare themselves open for business, quote unquote, uh, you have, you know, A, how many stores are going to be left to open, but we've talked about that. B, how many of the stores that could open will, you know, how many of those store owners want to open themselves to that? There might be some, you know, there might be, this is a bit of a passing judgment, but there may be some res responsible store owners who say, you know, even though my state officially declared the doors open, uh, you know, I'm not comfortable with that, so I'm not going to make that call and then even still you have players who might go well my, you know my state's open and my store is supposed to be running fnm but i'm not really comfortable going and sitting around with all these guys and it's not like magic players are known for their hygiene in a <laughs> they are known for their hygiene but not in a great way uh so that adds to it and then you know plenty of locations already had trouble hitting maximum numbers on fnm uh so I would think all of this combined, even if you've got a lion's share of stores uh, or states who have declared themselves open for business come September or October, I would be surprised if a lot, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of places were just not, not running events or weren't running events anywhere near the volume that they may have in the past. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a slow unfurling would be my guess, even when, my guess, even when the time comes. Yeah. The So in this top eight for standard, 
Almost everything was Jeskai Fires of Invention. There was a fairly interesting deck in 7th uh, by way of it not being 80 cards in Yorion. This seems to be somebody who rejected the 80 card theories of Sam Black and instead was running Karuga the Macrosage mm-hmm. uh, as their uh, companion to get a bunch of cards in the mid game after dropping a whole bunch of other stuff. The only two decks in the top eight that weren't Jeskai Fires was the cycling deck that finished first, uh, which might be a, a super sweet meta choice, uh, and a mono red deck that finished eighth that's just looking to get in under their big spells and hope, hope that they stumble on lands. So standard not looking super fun, although the play looks fairly technical, so it probably is relatively rewarding for the people that are into that. Sure. And, you know, they said the same thing about Cobblade. <laughs> so over in Pioneer, in the Pioneer Challenge, uh, first place was also a Luris deck, uh, but the this deck was basically Aristocrats. So a Rally the Ancestors deck with three Return to the Ranks and three Rally the Ancestors, one Call of the Death Dweller, and then 32 creatures, pretty much all of the aristocrat cards you would expect, your Zulaport Cutthroats, your Priest of Forgotten Gods, your Cruel Celebrants, and your Cartel Aristocrats, uh, but also running four Fiend Artisan, nice little sack outlet that gets bigger as stuff piles up in the graveyard, and... Yeah, this is a cool-looking deck. Uh, I'm sure anybody that's been sitting on Foil Return to the Ranks and Rallies would be super happy to see this deck still exist when Paper Magic resumes. Yeah, somebody was just talking about this on Twitter, and I forget. Um, I want to say it was Ross Marion, but maybe not. But one of them was saying, oh, Rally had a, a good result. Oh, it must have been Ross, because Ross was the first-place deck. Um, he wrote about this deck. So, and I picked Rally the Answers a couple of weeks ago with the idea of like, hey, this card, if this if this deck becomes a thing in the meta, Rally could see some nice movement. Um, of course, I had the caveat at the time that I had no idea whether these formats would change prior or, you know, whether you would have a reason to own or play these cards before Luris got banned. Um, and as a brief foreshadow to our future segment, I think you'll probably, at least I think pioneer is clear this coming change because i think the changes were to legacy and modern and brawl so it sounds like pioneers getting a a stay of reprieve for at least a little while or i should say lurus is getting a a stay of execution in pioneer for a little while yeah it it seems to have been less disruptive in in standard and pioneer especially modern's still looking pretty busted yeah Um, pioneer still very much impacted by companions just a little more spread out so it's not all all the blame doesn't fall on one one card exactly so second place in the pioneer was a mono red deck of course running lurus and this is a mixture of creatures (laughs) and instants it's a mono red deck of course running the black white card uh well it's a white card in a red white uh boros deck i know i know i'm just it's just funny because it's like oh yeah of course this this red the red essentially mono red deck is playing a black white card like you said you were correct when you say that it's just funny because that's the state that we're in right now probably not the deck that people gravitated to immediately when they first saw Luris. that's for sure yeah um third place in the pioneer was basically just the jet the deck from standard ported Mm. over to pioneer so all the same stuff gideon of the trials luca copper coat outcast 
uh, I guess Gideon being uh, pioneer specific, but Luca Coppercoat, Outcast, Four of, Narset, Four of, Teferi, Three Drop, Four of, Agents of Treachery, Deafening Clarion, Supreme Verdict instead of Shatter the Sky, I would imagine. Um, Baffling Ends, Elspeth Conquers Death, Fires of Invention, Oath of Chandra, Omen of the Sea, Shark Typhoons, and Birth of Miletus. So if it's good enough for Rock and Standard, apparently it can push it on into Pioneer. And of course, it's an 80 card deck with Yorion. Yep. So that, and that's interesting that you're starting to see that we could see these 80 card decks in these older formats too, where you think it'd be even less correct. And like, I wonder, I wonder if they'll stick with plus over 60 card decks in the older formats after Yorion's gone. I, I find it hard to believe, but I guess anything's possible at this point. Yeah. Fourth place uh, was an underworld breach deck. Uh, this is uh, basically the uh, one that we've been seeing for a while that uses hidden strings and uh, Vizier of Tumbling Sands to tap and untap Lotus Fields for a combo win. Uh, so that one's slipping in without any companion action. Fifth place is a Inverter of Truth, Thassa's Oracle, Jace Wielder of Mysteries deck, uh, but 80 cards, also using Yurion. Uh Sixth place, uh, Blue-White Control, so Teferi's, Gideon's, Supreme Verdicts, and a whole bunch of Blue-White cards. Uh, running Zerda the Dawn Waker, because of course Planeswalkers have activated abilities, and if all the rest of your stuff is spells then you don't have to you get basically zerta for free as long as you're willing to give up the sideboard slot seventh here was same as the second place uh jeskai control with fires of invention if fires didn't catch a ban here then i would be taking a harder look again at the extended arts yeah if if fires is going to be a staple in pioneer then those extended arts are going to be good i think that seems like a valid at least a valid consideration and doesn't seem like a crazy assumption to make either fires of invention is a cool, powerful card that even if it ends up being kind of obnoxious and standard could certainly find a a solid home in pioneer. I think your outlook on those extended arts is again, probably two years, but I'm behind it. And I think that, you know, when Fires of Invention was spoiled, Pioneer was the first thing that I was thinking. I wasn't really anticipating Standard being the big draw there. I thought it would be Pioneer where you'd have enough cards to do something real dirty with it. Um, But it wasn't going to be Modern or Legacy where the mana costs were so low that it was almost too expensive. Although now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure when Fires of Invention was spoiled, I saw somebody mention uh savor the moment and then i went and bought a bunch of those because i was like yeah that sounds disgusting (laughs) see the thing with fires is i don't think it's two years or bust i think it's like all or nothing they you can get foil extended arts and there's only 29 listings or something on tcg the ramps real quick from 12 up over 20 and beyond uh with some listings in the 40 to 50 dollar range if i know for a fact presciently that this card is not catching a ban and will survive in pioneer then i absolutely want those extended art foils at 12 if it's catching a ban or won't in standard and or won't survive in pioneer then i could care less about this card i would it will likely fall by the wayside i would be quite confident that it is not getting banned in pioneer i just don't at least not any time in the near future i just don't see 
any basis for that being too good in Pioneer at the moment. Now, who knows what they reprint. If they reprint uh, Savor the Moment into Pioneer, then that's a whole other story. But, you know, I don't think the evidence is there whatsoever to indicate that it's going to be a, get the hammer there. Well, keep in mind, I'm saying either or one of two things. It, oh, it has a to be- standard ban... Or fading out in Pioneer, just not being good enough for Pioneer. Okay. The, because the combination of the two would probably, one would draw, anytime something gets banned, people just stop buying it. Or buy the, like, crap, they stop buying the premium versions. Unless they're convinced that in an older format, it will be useful. Like, look at what happened with Oko along the way. As it was picking up its various bands, folks were still buying foil extended art Okos right up until it was basically just banned out of existence in Pioneer and Modern and and standard and then the bottom dropped out of that market finally so i don't know where i want to be with fires i might be, be could be convinced to pick up maybe four of these foil extended arts for say 45 or something if i could get slight discount on them and that might be about as deep as i'm willing to go it's not the kind of thing i want 20 copies of that's for sure 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 i mean i could see going in for a place at would you say they were like 15 bucks or something 12 bucks oh that's that's so cheap that's so cheap for extended art foils. I mean, this deck doesn't have to do much in Pioneer at all to double from there in a year or two. It's also hard to picture how this shell doesn't just get better. Yes. Yeah. Like th- this is not a one trick pony that can be easily attacked from a specific angle. <laughs> You've got 17 planeswalkers Agents of Treachery in the late game, Supreme Verdicts that can't be countered, a whole bunch of card draw, uh, cost reduction mechanics as as built into Fires of Invention, Omen of the Sea and Omen of the Sun to give you scrying and card drawing and the creation of little tokens that can block stuff, Birth of Miletus, I, I have had cast against me in a whole bunch of different decks on Arena because... Get a planes, make a wall that you got to deal with, pick up a little extra life, all for two mana is that that looking, that, that kind of card that a control deck will run in the two slot that looks really mediocre, and then you play against it and realize that it's just, it's adding time to their clock mm-hmm. and letting them get to turns four, five, six, seven, where they just totally take control. Yeah, those cards can be deceptive, but they can really punch above their weight class uh, yeah. in terms of the impact on the game they can have. And they get to run in that format out of the sideboard, things like more Elspeth Conquers Death, if that's necessary. More Deafening Clarion, if they need to take care of a bunch of creatures. Rest in Pieces, they've got a Yorion, of course. Damping Spheres, Mystical Disputes, and Void Winner... Void Winnerer is an odd one, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just, just caught that at the last second. I was like, wait, two Void Winnerer? Sure, why um, not? I, I guess because you can bring them in and do that with Luca against certain decks. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Anything I say is just going to be a complete off-the-cuff guess. Yeah, so. because cause the whole thing with Luca, right, is that you are searching through your library to show and tell, the but only for you. And so you don't want to find other little creatures along the way. You want to have cards that incidentally make tokens so that if there's a creature in your deck, Luca will pull it into play. So, for instance, the four Omen of the Sun and the four Birth of Miletus make these tokens. And then the Lucas can turn the tokens into Void Winnerers out of the board. Uh, and then that's an 11-9, and your opponents can't cast spells with even converted mana costs, and they can't block with creatures with even converted mana costs. 
Well, yeah, I mean, if you're trying to pull that kind of nonsense, uh, Void Winnower is a good option for sure. I don't know if he's necessarily better than the alternatives, but he seems good enough at least. So the eighth place deck in the format, Mono Red, Boros Burn, same kind of thing. This one, surprisingly, not running Luris, but I have no idea if that was just a uh, transcription error of sorts. Over in Modern, uh, the first place deck and the Modern Super Qualifier, which is a step up from the challenge, uh, was a wild deck. These Anything with Uro or Urza always seems to be incredibly flexible and you keep seeing these iterations on these decks um, over time this one is an 80 card yorion build but it's got the scape shift package built in there's renin sixes ice fang quaddles uro titan of nature's wrath and then you've got all the stuff you see in teamer uh scape shift builds cryptic commands grow spirals is it charms lightning bolts remands and of course, leaning on four Arkham's Astrolab, because if you're not running those in modern, you're probably doing it wrong. 36 lands. So this is, at its heart, a scapeshift build, but has a bunch of some of the more busted cards uh, out of Modern Horizons and the recent standard sets to round out up to 80. It's it's kind of... Having seen Run and Six in Legacy so much, it's weird to see it in modern because I keep forgetting that it's legal there, and it seems like it shouldn't be. Like, that seems like a legacy, a card that is too powerful for modern, essentially. Well, and didn't have a fantastic home for the first six months after Modern Horizons appeared because it was out there doing work. But the builds that were most people assumed would be running it, like Jund, were kind of falling off the top tables. Now, with Lurus back in play, that, you know, two-drop Jund is all about the Renin Six. Because um, it just works perfectly. Mm-hmm. So second second place here, we have a Boggles deck uh, running Luris. So of course, th- the fact that Luris is white, black specifically, either or, really opened up the number of decks. Like it, if Luris was just randomly blue, red, it may have had significantly more trouble finding a home. Yeah, white, black seemed to position it in the like it doesn't seem like it's a primary color of any of the decks that want it but all of the decks that want it are able to splash into it well like it, the white connects it to boros burn the white connects it to the white side of boggles the black connects it to jund um and uh in pioneer the black white enchantments deck it's, it's ridiculously ubiquitous and it definitely needs to go in some of these formats um, sure i let's put it this way i have zero intention to own any luris <laughs> yeah. yeah i i will build some busted luris deck but i'll wait till it is dirt cheap because there's nowhere to play it anymore i i, I i'm i wouldn't be the type of person to own it regardless but i just i don't know what i would do with it yeah i just if if i wasn't actively playing with it i definitely wouldn't want it but where would you actively be playing with it anyways so heading into release weekend it's a 15 dollar rare yeah that's not correct. sell 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 that card third place is ad nauseum uh only new pieces i recognize here being the fourth asses oracles which date back to of course the release of theros beyond death um everything else is the kind of stuff i've been playing against uh Across from this deck for years. No companion in that action. 
The fourth place deck is an 80 card Yorion build with Emery, Gilded Goose, Ice Fang, Quattle, Uro, and Urza. These just must be so painful to play against. You see all that power unfold <laughs> in front of you. Gilded Goose into an Ice Fang Quaddle, into Emery or Uro, then up into Urza, and you're just like, ah, how good is my hand, really? Should we just move on to the next game? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a rough curve to follow right there. Yeah. So fifth place in the modern tournament, uh, Red Luris. Uh, pretty similar to the the one that was doing work in standard, really. Um, they get to use Mishra's Bobble. Bobble's been popping hard on all the Luris action. Bobble's also a card you should be selling as a result. Red White Burn was also in sixth place. Seventh place was more Emery, Ice Fang, Uro Urza. But in this case, uh, because it's Yorion, they found room for three Kinnon, Bonder, Bonder Prodigy. Hmm. Uh, which allows Springleaf Drums, another little innovation in there, and Arkham's Astrolabs to do extra work, and then I guess your Gilded Goose as well. And then they're also running two Song of Creation in this build, which is the uh, enchantment out of Ikoria, one teamer. You may play an additional land on each of your turns. Whenever you cast a spell, draw two cards, and at the beginning of your end step, discard your hand. So somebody goes Urza and the next turn drops Song. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably get ready to scoop. That's Cle- going to be nasty. Clearly this guy has a plan and I am yeah. not ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that deck looks cool. If I was picking up a modern deck, that's probably the one I would reach for just to take it for a spin and see all the little interactions. A deck uh, that has eight... both Urza and Song creation would be hard to turn away. Yeah. So eighth place in this modern super qualifier was a Sultai Spells build that is on that other busted four mana enchantment from the last year, Wilderness Reclamation, uh, pushing aside Fires of Invention for the other way to cast extra spells. Uh, and this is Jace the Mind Sculptor, Ice Fang Quaddles, Uros, Dead of Winter, and then a, and then a pile of control cards uh, with a Nexus of Fate to really get things nasty. Nifty, nifty. All right, then very quickly through Legacy, since I don't think the current meta is all that matters all that much, given that I suspect it's going away within the month. Um, but you've got Luris in first, Grixis Delver, basically, uh, notably for Dreadhorde Arcanist. Those foils are certainly worth keeping an eye on for Legacy purposes, because don't think I think they will survive. Uh, Luris being pulled out of contention. Uh, the next one is a Zerda the Dawn Waker, 60-card brew, with Karn the Great Creator, Oko Thief of Crowns, two Teferi Time Raveler. So, nasty nine Planeswalkers. Three Walking Ballistas can take advantage of Zerda. Arkham's Astrolab, Grim Monoliths. That's it. Speaking of cards that I forget are legal in Legacy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Grim Monolith. <laughs> Uh, and then they're running a Retrofitter Foundry. This is a one-mana artifact out of the Commander card series. Three to untap it. Two, tap, create a 1-1 Servo. One, sack a Servo, create a 1-1 Thopter. Sack a Thopter, create a 4-4 Colorless Construct. That must be a reader at the Legacy Tables. Uh, so activated abilities that aren't mana abilities cost two less. So you pay one to make a retrofitter foundry, but or you pay one to make 
a servo and then one to untap it. So you have a two mana cycle. I guess. That seems not good. I mean, I guess that's fine. It's fine. If you have well, Zerda in play. It's a sure. one of. It's a one of. It's a one of, yeah. It's a one of in Legacy. Do whatever you want, man. It 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 also the Grim Monoliths are there. Summer in the deck. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 Grim the Grim Monoliths are there, of course, because they go infinite with Zerda. Uh, because they, cost... they make they make three and untap for two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because Zerda's so, two. Yeah. So if you have Zerda, a Grim Monolith, and Retrofitter Foundry, you just make infinite four fours. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Once you've got Zerda and Grim Monolith, the sky's the limit there. Kill them with Walking Ballista. Etc. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's a pretty cool deck. Um, Legacy has not seen the like before. Uh, Grixis also in third with Luris. Fourth is a Blood Moon deck. Yeah, this is uh, the big red deck basically. Yeah, the big red with Trinospheres and whatever. Uh, Karn the Great Creators and Chandra Torch of Defiance is a four of Bone Crusher Giant making appearance from Eldraine. Uh, and then two fiery confluence. Uh, fifth place, more Grixis Luris. Uh, looks like blue green Luris in sixth with nimble mongooses and Delver of Secrets and Tarmogoyfs. Yeah, this is basically uh, Canadian Threshold that pushed Luris into it. They dropped their lightning bolts. And get to play. Oh, yeah, they drop. They it's Canadian Threshold, but they drop Lightning Bolt and put in Black so they can play Luris and get. And back they have the waves and, and, and they that lets them also play uh, three Abrupt Decay. Mm-hmm. So it's really Saltai, not blue blue green. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got a <laughs> Zerda combo with everything deck in seventh place. So you've got Voltaic Keys and Manifold Keys untapping your grim monoliths and basalt monoliths and you're just basically looking to get infinite mana in play as fast as possible on the back of city of traders and ancient tomb yeah what nice is... nice huh. <laughs> legacy to say that legacy and vintage have been warped by companions is the understatement of the century huh this is this is a, this is the wild west because a lot of these decks are never going to see the light of day in paper. No, 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 no. Pe- people have said that if Luris, I saw a comment on Twitter this week from a pro that if Luris gets knocked out in Legacy, it's just going to be Zerda Yorion all over the place, or like the companions will still be a problem, and getting rid of the most offensive companion is not going to solve things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very much of the opinion that that is correct. I don't, I think it's, yeah, oh, Luris is a big problem in Legacy. Let's ban him. Yep. Okay, now it's the next one. Now it's the next one. Like the the, the least good companion is still probably very close to too good for Legacy. And the funny thing is, it's it's really kind of hard to picture what the vacuum fills in to look like in some of these formats when you get rid of Luris. Because often when there's a card that is particularly offensive, if, if that deck is running rampant, you can kind of think, you can look at all the other decks that are competing against it and just not putting up 
results quite as good and go, okay, well, these this these three or four tier one or 1.5 decks are not going to be impacted by losing this card. So you can assume they're going to be around in the next format. But in this case, I think you have to go back and look back a couple months. Like you have to look before Ikoria cards became legal and figure out where things were at. And then do a little bit of head math on which Ikoria cards have no chance of being banned that may impact things. Ikoria is kind of a, a weird situation because most other than companions, the impact on the older formats from Ikoria has not been dramatic at all. There are very few cards. Um, it's other than companions, everything else is very kind of casual and EDH focused. So you're really going to have to do a little bit of background check on the format two months ago when the Alluris bands drop to figure out where am I supposed to be looking for the three months, six months, nine months from now? I mean, I sure don't know. Uh, and I would challenge anyone that says they do what this is going to look like. I think you're right that you have to dial it back, but it feels like it's far enough back that if you're trying to figure out what format, what state of legacy you're supposed to look back at that had the results prior to this state of events, you will find that it is so dramatically different than what the card pool is at this point that it's not a meaningful reference point. I think for legacy, I don't really care much on the paper side of things. Like I might care in terms of what I'm going to do with magic online with legacy, but I'm thinking more along the lines of modern. I think in modern, you, you're probably looking at some of these Uber green, blue staples, your Kinnons, your Uros, your Urzas, your gilded gooses. Um, that stuff was doing very well before all the companion nonsense. It's still doing well during the companion nonsense. Ice Fang Coatles aren't going to be any worse on the other side of companion nonsense. So all of that stuff's looking pretty good. Somebody offered me 45 on a Russian Urza the other day, and I just waved it off. A lot, a lot of that, the, the mythics from Modern Horizon... A, have hollowed out of the market just from inventory dropping out of the market. B, that, you know, we've been talking about how the buy list can't replenish fast enough on some of the really good stuff. And C, people have just stopped opening Modern Horizons, um, by and large. And it's essentially out of print at this point. Um, the cheap Modern Horizons boxes have been drying up. They were There was nine, I think $1,000 cases available through various vendors not so long ago, like maybe two, four weeks ago. And now the cheapest case, somebody was asking me today, uh, so I double-checked, and I think the cheapest case I saw was closer to 1100 on TCG Player, and I suspect not too long from now they're going to be more like twelve to 1300 again. It's a chunk of change, for sure. I mean, that's also like a 40% increase from where they are today. Mm, well, I mean... You said 900 to like thirteen or 1400 right? Is what you're no, no, they were is. they were closer to a thousand on say Card Kingdom like four weeks ago, mm. and I think they will come the fall. They'll probably be looking at somewhere like twelve fifty to thirteen hundred, and then it'll just be a steady climb upward from there because there'll just won't be that many left in the market. And weird random cards from that set are starting to take off. Uh, you know, somebody was asking me to pick up some foil Morphon the Bandless uh, in Europe the other day because. They're basically can't be found under 50 in North America and Europe still has some in the 30 to $40 range. And, you know, where's that replenishment going to come from? 
keeping in mind that Modern Horizons uses the old foil uh, drop rates, didn't have a foil per pack. So a foil mythic is like a one of event per box if you're lucky. And that means you, at minimum you need 15 boxes to find a foil Urza or Morophon or whatever. And there just aren't that many boxes being opened. So the, the market should, even if there's going to be a couple thousand more boxes open this year, the market will easily absorb the outcome. Yeah, that's a that's very fair is that all of those odds and ends from Modern Horizons um you know they don't have to be great today there's just not a lot of great avenues to replenish them in the immediate future so could have some pretty good runs there on those across the next couple months and two years or so it's pretty interesting because a lot of the mdg price pro traders went real deep on modern horizons it just seemed like such a slam dunk this time last year and did very well and then as the Hogak ban took hold and people started talking about, you know, other cards that were potentially problematic and then Pioneer was announced in the fall, people felt kind of ripped off. Like Horizons had was addressing a market that might not be there and they might not get their chance to unload. But recently, if you look at Magic Online results, as we were talking about last week or the week before, um, most of the action on Magic Online, where people have free reign to to play either Pioneer or Modern or Legacy as their heart's desire, um, has been more modern than Pioneer by by quite a bit. Um, so at least in the Magic Online environment, Pioneer has not overtaken Modern in the way that we feared that it might. Now, what's going to happen in paper? Who knows? And all I can say is this. I think the risk to holding Modern Horizons cards, boxes, etc., isn't anything to do with whether modern will get played at this point it's much more to do about when any paper magic will get played well i so i'm a you know people who've been listening right along here will see the split between us it's familiar but i'm i'm a little less sold on this than you are i don't doubt for a second that modern has seen a lot of play online um frankly if i was playing on moto that's probably the format i'd be looking at too I'm just not convinced that it's the attention to modern on Moto is going to make the transition to paper when people are eventually back in stores, especially since by the time we get there, Pioneer is going to have had another, you know, for some people, Pioneer could have had another full year's worth of cards since the last time they played. Like the format's going to seem bigger and more interesting than it did the last time they were standing in a card store. I definitely haven't like about faced on modern versus pioneer. I still think pioneer steals spotlight from modern and slows down specs there. But I also think the best of like mythics from $240 boxes can still easily get there. Well, that, that I wouldn't, that I'm not arguing, not, not going to make that claim that modern, no modern cards will ever make a move and that cards that are, mostly well positioned still won't get there because modern's not popular enough i'm not taking that stance either well and then the other thing is that a bunch of these cards like say morophon are they're in modern horizons but they're not relevant in modern that's a commander card and has been spotted as such from day one so it's a commander card that was only in an expensive box it's a mythic etc the foils are are not at a high foil drop rate. And so that's going to unfurl the way you would expect. 
Yes. Then I would, uh, and I would also agree to that, that when I'm talking about this, I'm saying that the cards that would be moving because of modern are the ones I'm slightly more hesitant on modern horizon cards that are ETH cards. I have a completely different opinion on, and I even mentioned one of them in our last segment today. So eighth place in the legacy tournament was a counterbalance deck. And all you got to know really is that Luris is completely out of control. Yorian's not doing much better. And the whole situation is pretty sketchy. <laughs> so let's move on over to see how that has impacted the market's top paper movers of the week. Let's start with Gaia's Cradle, a card that I uh, am running a survey on currently, asking people what they thought Gaia's Cradle's market price would be on TCG Player come June 2021. Do you think, Travis, that Gaia's Cradle will be below 300, close to 400, close to 500, or above? Come what, what next June, you said? Correct. Well, uh, and it was about $400 for the pack copies as of two weeks ago. Is that where we are? I was trading into Cradles at about 300 in buy list credit as early as maybe four or five months ago. And recently they have been through the process, the COVID process. Inventory has disappeared from the market. Folks seem to have maybe targeted it a bit. And I think the lowest price copy that I spotted on TCG Player earlier today was something near 400, 400, 415, I want to say. All right. Well, if they're floating around 400 right now, I mean, I feel like I'm cheating a little bit because I'm looking at the line on our spreadsheet here. I, I would probably estimate them to have ticked up by next June, but likely relatively slowly. So I could I would I would expect them to be in the roughly 450 range next June, but you know that's being reasonably conservative. If they were 650 dollars next summer, I wouldn't be shocked. I mean that would be so great. <laughs> I certainly have enough cradles, both in English and Japanese, that ha having and especially because they are buy list exits that were just supposed to be static holding points with potential upside, because that means. In those situations, it's stuff like I spent four hundred, got a thousand dollar in buy list credit, got three cradles, and then the three cradles that you're telling me might double. I mean, <laughs> fine by me. Yeah, I, that's I do. A good I, way to go. <laughs> I I do wonder though how much the market will be able to fill backfill inventory along the way versus new price memory, just setting up an expectation that Cradle is a 400 or $500 or $600 card, and then it just sitting there for a long time. You know, it's been a $300 card for a few years now. The thing is, I think, I'm not saying it will, but I think Gaia's Cradle could comfortably be a $1,000 EDH card. Like, I think that there is a version of the future in which that is true, and it doesn't really surprise people because it's, one of the best cards in the format and it's got all of the markings of being you know it's got all the markings of being possibly the most expensive edh card that exists it's ph phenomenal in the format it's old as hell there's one promo copy that's even more ridiculous uh it's reserveless you can't get more of them it just seems like it's got all the all the pieces are in place there I mean, the closer it pushes to a thousand, the more likely that the judge promo goes to two. Yeah, um, which would also be nice. Um, 
all the more reason to be pursuing EDH cards that are reserved list that are almost impossible to replace. We've already gotten growing rights of Idlamok, so you have access to a nearer cradle, but there's no substitute for just dropping it, not having to engage in shenanigans to get access to the free mana. Yeah, and with how popular Golos has been for the last couple months in EDH, it's clear that Magic players, EDH players, still value the ability to just go fetch a land. Yeah. And the thing is that looking at like TCG average pricing over the last, say, 10 years or so, it took Cradle a while to get up over 100. It was about mid-2013. From It got up to about 150 by about halfway through that year, and then held it all the way to about mid of the way through 2016. Then you get into like the Bitcoin era in 2017, and you see it go from 200 to spiking up near 300 or so. And then it sat there for a couple of years, like I said, and now looks like, looks to be taking off again. So if I had to pick my number, given that the lowest price on TCG right now is 400, then there's a 440 copy, then a 450, then you're right up to 500. I guess I'm going to say 450 to be conservative, but could easily end up between five and six. Yeah. Yeah. And the and it's one of those cards that seems like it, it's, I wouldn't be surprised also to see it not be a gradual change, but be a stepped change. It's four hundred. It's three hundred dollars for you know two or three years or whatever, and then it's four hundred all of a sudden in the span of a month, and then it sits at four hundred to four fifty for nine months, and then it's five hundred, right? Like there isn't a. It's not a, a slow gradual process of it slowing out and the price creeping up, but more just that you just see the whole thing go. Fifty also or hundred dollars at a time. Yeah. Also, kind of makes me want to take a harder look at what. Urza's saga boxes are going for these days because when this was a $200 card paying 2500 or whatever for a box wasn't very exciting I don't know what the true market is on those because it's not the kind of thing I track on a, a week-to-week or even month-to-month basis but I'm gonna go kick some cans around and see if somebody's got one posted for sale on the high-end Facebook group or something just to get a sense to as to whether the market has already reacted to potential future increases Here's There's a my- big difference big difference between a booster box where the best thing you could pull would be a $300 rare versus a booster box where the best thing you could pull would be a $1,000 rare that you could go grade. Here's my problem. Can you bring yourself to open an Urza Saga box? I don't well, think I could. Well, no, but it's just about like what it adds to the potential value of the box in the market. My understanding is that Saga boxes were already very overpriced versus what might come out of them, as tends to be typical of the older boxes, revised booster boxes and so forth can easily uh, cost you a lot of money if you bother to open them. Um, but as a card, if a card goes from 200 to 1,000 and it's a rare in the set and it's from an era where there's no mythics, etc., and there's 36 packs in the box, you've got a you've got a 60% chance of pulling that $1,000 card. It really underwrites the box to a significant degree, and I would expect to see the price on the sealed product rise accordingly. Yeah, I mean, if if that's fine, if you're buying the box in the sense that I don't, you know, the box hasn't moved in price to accommodate for Cradle jumping two hundred dollars, and you know, with the expectation that Cradle is going to keep going, that's fine. I'm just thinking that 
I couldn't buy a box like that with the expectation that I will open it if Cradle gets to be expensive enough. I don't think I want to be the guy who's cracking Saga's boxes. I saw you retweet somebody today who's opening an unlimited starter pack, and I don't like that either. <laughs> well, he's he's that's our our boy that we interviewed last year, uh, yeah. and the you know he's he's winning every time on that because he's spending 30k or whatever and then reselling it for 35k and pocketing the difference minus expenses it's not the whether or not he makes it or not it's the opening of product that can't be shut again basically i mean if i'm if i was somebody who was holding sealed i would just love it every time i saw youtube push that agenda (laughs) uh yes i'm sure you would be (laughs) every one of those that gets open makes the other ones better Yep. No question. There. All right. So in theory, Cradle is pushing 500 bucks. You can still, especially during COVID times, probably negotiate a price somewhere between 400 and 450 via personal sale. So this is the kind of card where I, I don't see it ever being 300 again. It could end up 350 to 400, I think, worst case. So if you've ever wanted to own a copy, you should start thinking about whether you can afford it. There's basically never been a time that wasn't true. For reserve list at this level, sure. Yeah, um, I mean, you could almost you could actually say that there have been points where that wasn't true about power, right? Like, I think you know during the the Bitcoin boom two years ago, power had spiked, and now it's come down. I believe I'm not. I don't have the graph in front of me, but I'm pretty sure power is cheaper today than it was during the Bitcoin boom. So you weren't supposed to buy it then if you wanted it. You were supposed to wait. But I don't think Gaius Cradle is in the position to be reversing course here. Before COVID was a thing, people were already talking about a recession this year, and some of the pressure had let up on some of the lower end power. Um, graded stuff just was continuing to push higher. Yeah. Um, especially beta and alpha. So, but, anyway, but Cradle, that's this... not Cradle, though, to me, because Cradle no. rests on play pattern, not coolness. I think it's a combination of, of nostalgia, extremely high power level, ubiquity, like ubiquity in terms of its utility and you edh and being you know one of the most busted lands of all time it's it's got a lot going for it but it's significantly more playable than your average mocks sure so necropotent set of ice age 20 to 28 it gets infrequent reprints uh, i think m25 was the last necropotence uh, Sounds about printing, right. If I'm not mistaken, eighteen thousand decks on EDH rec, uh, crazy busted card, kicked the crap out of me at Canadian Nationals in '95 or whatever. <laughs> Agent of Treachery out of M20, uh, seven dollars to ten dollars. Cards continues to be on the move because of standard dominance, EDH play, and now we're looking at Pioneer play in Jeskai Control. So Agent of Treachery could easily end up being a fifteen to twenty dollar card before it catches a reprint. Willow Seder is a reserve list Legends card that steals commanders. So it went from 80 to 125, probably because it was targeted and somebody picked up five or 10 copies across the internet. Ooh, I am excited uh, to see Willow Seder on here. Concordant Crossroads out of Chronicles going from 25 to 40. Could be Kinnon pressure on that. I'm not entirely sure. Um, basically lets you uh, creatures with tap effects get to use them right away. Uh, Mana Vault 5th edition version 36 to 60. It's an EDH super staple. This is just the hollowing out of inventory on some of the better cards in various formats. Pemmin's Aura, on the other hand, uh, foils going from 26 to 45. That's probably Zaxara. 
um, EDH demand because the aura lets you go infinite with Zaxara. She taps for more mana than it takes to untap her with the aura on. Mishra's Bobble, of course, uh, 15 to 28, getting pushed up, up, up by Lurus Drain. You want to sell, sell, sell into that hype. Uh, Lurus maybe survives in modern for a while, but <laughs> I wouldn't count those chickens. Echo of Eons out of Modern Horizons, uh, another kind of multi-format, maybe good here, maybe good there, doesn't have a super great home, uh, but moving from 7 to 14 on the back of Zidrus, I would imagine, uh, the fact that the Zidrus deck wants any and all wheel effects, and Echo of Eons gives you that. Uh, you're also going to be running looting effects in that deck, so you can get the Echo dropped into your graveyard and then cast it from there for the lesser mana cost. Uh, Planebound Accomplice Foils going from 4 to 850. I think this is clearly targeting getting ahead of the market because there has been some Luka shenanigans in Modern around this where you go Elf, turn 2, Planebound Accomplice, turn 3, use the Planebound to drop Luka, and then put Emrakul into play. Ooh, that's cute. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff is always always makes a splash but ends up being too fragile generally. Yeah. modern like luca i believe in the combo luca off the back of plane bound accomplice seems so easy to interact with that i would not count on that being an awesome thing i've got a big stack of plane bound accomplices because it was a pet card i declared when the modern horizon spoilers were going on but i think my in on those was 68 cents so i really only need buy list to get to like a dollar 25 or something for me to get excited well you know i i have uh, slightly mixed feelings about that because like yes it's easily dealt with um you know if you're if your plan is to turn one dork turn two plane bound turn three activate uh but it, you know i've played enough modern to know that it's very interactable but sometimes they just don't have the interaction and it's relatively regular that they don't have the interaction and then you just get to crush them so the deck has to have more going for it than that but that's totally a legitimate play pattern and in in fact, putting an Emrakul in the play on turn three is, you know, better than what has been possible in modern in the past in terms of timing. Not the best, but it's up there. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it's, it's pretty nasty if you can pull it off. Yeah. Um, one, one of the issues with those decks is what do you do if you don't have plane band in hand? Right, right. Can you, can you, is, does the deck have enough of a scaffolding that you can survive when other turns are trying to kill you on their turn three four or five mm-hmm. yeah your deck's got you know if you're playing that type of deck you got to have a, a plan for what are the three ways or two to three ways i can put emrakul in the play like one of them is playing bound accomplice what are the other ones sure so Misty Rainforest, original Zendikar printing foils, in theory going from 125 to 300 but their market price on tcg is only 133 so this is really just Folks saying fetches are going to be around forever, at least in modern legacy and EDH. Sure, they're, Misty's almost certainly going to get a foil reprint this year, one way or the other. But original foil printings are probably just going to keep getting more expensive in smaller and smaller increments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have, uh, when we realized these were as pricey as they were like last week or two weeks ago, I dug out my Zendikar copies and stuck them online um, because I was like, I, what, you know, what do I need the original Zendikar printing for? I don't think it's really great. 
Uh, I don't I don't need to hold on to it because I think the reprints will will crush that price a good bit. But the foils I held on to. Um, the original foils, and I don't think that they're necessarily the best version of the cards, but a pack original pack foils for cards that remain relevant uh, seem to do quite well over time, despite the fact that they're nothing more than a collector's oddity. And though there are expeditions of this card, they are pricey as well, and not beloved. The, the expedition frame is polarizing. And I would imagine most diehard legacy and EDH players would prefer to own the Zendikar, foil, Zendikar foils. Uh, yeah, and I would imagine Zendikar foils are also seen as cooler. Like, a little, they're, they have more cred. I, I think this is one of the, similar to Gaia's Cradle, this is where you want to shit or get off the pot in terms of whether you ever want to own original fetch foils. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's probably true. I mean, again, I don't see original pack foils and the cars getting really any cheaper on Mysterine Forest than they are today. I, but I also don't see a re- reason why you really need to own them. But to each their own, I suppose. Topping the list, Final Fortune, Mirage copy. This is take another turn. If you don't win the game by the end of it, you're dead. Uh, $2, $10, 400% change. All versions on the move. I have no idea where this is coming from. Well, yeah, that one guy that messages you all the time must be feeling pretty good, huh? The guy with all the seventh edition foil final fortunes, yes. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I, I, I I assume this is someone just mopping up a card that has hardly any any copies, but who knows? I did have somebody message me on Twitter today um, and said, you know, I've been listening in the last couple episodes. Every time you guys have said you weren't sure what a card was, it was he, it was CEDH. Uh, I didn't do my homework to verify what he said, but. Um, I know that some of those partner commanders have seen price increases that made me do a double take that seemed like they would fit in CDH. So I, I'm willing to give that claim the benefit of the doubt without having done the homework to see if he's right. And it's possible that. Oh, well, this has been a raging de- thing. This has been a raging debate in our discord. Um, and l- let me clarify what my position here is. I can well believe that somebody is targeting CEDH cards, trying to make them a thing. I do not believe, especially given the results of the survey that I ran on Twitter last week, that CEDH is any kind of meaningful component of the community in terms of the people that are buying cards. I would guess that of all of the cards that fall into this, this is good in CDH category that have been targeted in the last month. That it's a group of people that decided to go after those things, and they've been buying them up. And there may be some trailing <clears throat> demand coming from other people that heard that that was going on, and then just started trying to spot other things. But where's... Again, nobody is playing Paper Magic right now. No one is playing Paper CEDH right now. Maybe some people are playing on Skype and whatever, but that's a relatively small component of the community. And according to, we, we took a look at Google Trends because there were, this discussion had been ongoing in our Discord. So we took a look at, you know, what what is the factor of difference between CEDH related searches on Google over the last several years versus Commander. And while CEDH shows a mild incline, Commander is still 30 or like generalized Commander is still 30 or 40 times the kind of d- interest in CEDH. So I don't buy for a second that the market is <clears throat> ready to absorb 
the next series of price, plat- price plateaus on all these CEDH cards. I do believe that some of these cards are old, haven't been printed in a long time, didn't have particularly deep inventory to begin with, were relatively easy to corner, and now it's going to be, you know, if you bought 30 copies of Final Fortune this week, best of luck to you. I hope there is either a greater fool or a real player at the end of that road for you, but I'm not feeling super confident. Well, so I'm pretty much in the same spot as you are. I am surprised that General EDH is only 30 more times, searched 30 times more often than CEDH. Um, But yeah, I, I would expect the same thing, that it's probably mostly people trying to push the issue on some of these cards. We know and have explained an innumerable number of times that that's only going to work if there is some sort of latent demand there for those cards and they're just ending up with a price correction. Time will tell, uh, but it, you know at least it would serve to explain why we have to talk about these cards in the first place. Um, now, there, there were a couple of good points made in our Discord on this topic. Um, probably the most... Uh, compelling one was that there's been an uptick in YouTube uh, focus on CEDH, that there are more CEDH-specific channels now. You had the professor interviewing a prominent CEDH channel runner um, recently and talking about CEDH as a thing. The professor has massive reach, so you can assume that tens of thousands of people saw that interview with the professor, and even if it's only 2 or 3% of them um, are people that fall into the category, mixed the overlapping categories of I currently play commander I would like to make my commander deck ridiculously more broken and shuffle much more often and so I will now start purchasing cards for this apparently emerging trend called CEDH um, which is neither a truly separate format doesn't have its own ban list etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, God so, I cannot imagine wanting to play a version of EDH that makes me shuffle more and with more strict timings. Ugh. Yeah, it's, it's it's not for me either. But I do believe that there are people out there that feel completely the opposite, that would like to play, that like the, the premise of Commander, but want to play the most efficient decks that are um, competitive, but also social. The, I mean, you're going to spend more time talking because you're going to spend more time shuffling. So yeah. In that sense, it might be more social. I'm picturing uh, people who are like not eager to play, but their own EDH groups drum them out for building decks that were too competitive and cutthroat, so they had to go play CDH because it was the only place they could play their decks. I think the best advice that we've been giving people on this topic is whether or not you believe that CDH cards are being targeted by players versus potential vendors or some mix of the two. Your safest bet is to focus on the cards that are already just good in EDH generally. This was kind of like where Jason Alt chimed in to uh, to give his two cents on the topic. He and I were in agreement that if the card is great in EDH, period, then it pr- doesn't really matter if it's good in CEDH. Many of the same pricing dynamics will apply given a long enough time horizon. Mm-hmm. And so something like Final Fortune doesn't really ring my bell given the reported level of usage on edh rack um but some of the other supposedly targeted cedh cards are more generally have a generally higher utility across commander as a whole and are more likely to see movement i mean probably the most prominent one as of late was wheel of fortune right Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. people were talking about how the people that are all about 
CEDH's moving card prices. We're pointing at Wheel of Fortune. I was pointing at Zydrus saying, yeah, or it could just be the new commander that requires you to play wheels, Yeah, um, which is much more likely to be the case. But ultimately, it doesn't matter which of those two things is true as long as they are both true. You know, even if the CEDH demand is, you know, a fraction of the Zydrus demand, it can still add to the total demand, which matters. Yes, that's definitely going to pay you off, you know, better than if you shoot for CDH cards specifically on the whole. Um, and obviously you want to get behind a card that's going to pick up the steam from both of them. I can still see trying to hit a couple CDH cards specifically that aren't going to be that popular in general EDH and something like, you know, for example, maybe it's Final Fortune. I don't even know if we're talking about Final Fortune because of CDH. But if we are, that's the type of card that's not going to float the boat in normal EDH, but I could see being much more attractive in CDH. And if it's a card that otherwise has the trappings of a good invest, you know, good spec, it's old it's got very limited supply there hasn't been a big run on it before so you know the price is about as low as it can be um you know that's something that i could get kind of excited about in the same way that i could get excited about some combo like like uh fires of invention getting printed and looking at modern going savor the moment right like this is a card that was irrelevant in modern but suddenly this makes it relevant um is cdh suddenly making final fortune relevant uh, i don't know but uh that's the type of very specific action i can see taking however on the whole i agree with jason and that you're better off just trying to hit the cards that stand to do well because they're played in both formats i just want to be targeting cyclonic rifts and smothering ties is the bottom well, line sure sure all right so moving right along uh actually the first week in recent memory where i think magic online had a quieter week than paper interesting uh luca copper coat outcast over on magic online did move from 10 to 12 dollars or so for about 20 percent gains of course doing work in standard and modern was call flagged in the magic online channel when he was closer to five or six i believe so people made some good money there finale of revelation going from 226 to 269 43 percent uh, 43 cent gains 19 percent total Minor amount of standard play, the kind of thing that would never ring my bell in paper, but can matter in on Magic Online. Underrealm Lich was called out on Brainstorm Brewery this week. Uh, I think it was by Jason, uh, going from $3 to almost $4, uh, almost 30% gains. Uh, Guilds of Ravnica Mythic that uh, is interesting. It's a 5-mana 4-3. You can pay 4 life to give it Undestructible until end of turn and tap it. But its key ability is if you would draw a card, instead look at the top three cards of your library, then put one of them into your hand and the rest into your graveyard. So if you cast something that draws you multiple cards, you can look at a ridiculous amount of cards. So like I think Brainstorm into this is draw nine, pick three. That's some serious action for sure. So uh, it's already in 7,000 plus decks, 9% of all possible on EDH rec. Jeez. Kind of mythic you should keep your eye on. It's you've definitely been, not bulk. You've been listening to a lot of 70s music in quarantine lately, James? Uh, I did watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the other night. Okay, because this is like the third time you've said Ring My Bell tonight. 
I, I would not at all be surprised if that had shown up in the Tarantino dialogue in that movie and that it somehow nested into my brain like a brain worm. I don't. I did see Once Upon a Time, and I don't remember that track in the movie. Did you like that movie, by the way? Yeah, I did, actually. I very, thought, under, very understated. I thought it was one of the other. worst movies I've ever seen. Oh, we could have an interesting after hours on that topic then. Yeah, and I, I guess that might be not be the fairest way to describe it, but that movie was much more niche than it was, I think, marketed or referred to so many people went to see it who i think it was not intended for myself primary among them would you argue that really only the final scenes of the movie lean into what people were probably expecting uh yes i hadn't thought about that question before now but probably yeah i mean his his other works have been so stylistic um and you know as you infer refer to here a lot more violent more going on uh this was so much slower than almost pretty much all of his other work uh i i have it on the a similar page to jackie brown i didn't see it i have not okay. i'm not a like kind of sewer of his work and i have not seen a lot of it so i can't speak to all of his films it, it's absolutely slower it's it's a dialogue movie for sure um and i thought the relevant actors did a pretty good job uh, but we could probably save that for another time. Finishing up our Magic Online movers, Faberow Elder out of Eldraine, $1.50 to $2. Standard Niv-Mizzet makes use of the card these days. Uh, and then Agent of Treachery, uh, moved in paper, moved online, seven fifty online to about nine fifty, thirty percent 30% gains or so. Uh, Agent of Treachery has a pretty strong future, I think, at least in paper. Uh, Magic Online, it will probably collapse uh, at the end of its standard lifetime. So that'd be a potential short opportunity, I think. Uh, all right, so we're going to move right along to our topic of the week. The two things, uh, both related to companions. One is they foreshadowed a forthcoming ban, which people are assuming is involving Luris, for Legacy Vintage and Brawl. Uh, and not, wait, was it Vintage or was it... Did they say Vintage? I think it was Legacy Vintage and Brawl. I thought it was Legacy Modern and Brawl. No, no, no. I don't think Modern's on the list. Oh, God. What what Twitter account did they tweet this on? Let me check it down. I mean, we don't know for sure what it's about because it's a... Oh, yeah. Vintage, Legacy, and Brawl. Okay. It yeah. was Vintage. Yeah. Huh. So impacting vintage. Oh yeah. This is I mean, this was our topic last week, right? Like Yeah, it was. It was. And we were I was questioning what how what decision they might make there because it was a very difficult format to handle as compared to the other ones. I suspect it's a straight up banning. <laughs> I I don't think anybody in vintage is gonna complain. They, none of them own a foil extended art Lurus yet. So the six bucks they had to pay to get their companion added to their Magic Online deck is not going to put anybody's it, nose out of joint. It's one of the it, easiest bans ever. Oh, I see. I disagree. I think this is possibly the hardest ban decision they could make. Because this has nothing to do with the cost of the card. This has everything to do with the management of a format. 
right? Like this is breaking a seal that's never been broken. And I don't know, when did they introduce vintage? Is that 20 years ago? 23? He's never banned a card in that format. But if, we don't need to rehash the, last week's conversation. It, if this card could be restricted, it would be. But because it's a companion, it is not going... The restriction has no meaning. <laughs> it is by nature restricted. Yep. So one option for across the board for Luris that's being discussed is certainly that they will just not let you play the card as a companion in a given format. So they could just have a brand new category of bands for companions specifically. You can play this card in Vintage. You just can't play it as your companion. That's a possibility. They could also do something about the companion rules because they aren't mentioned. They aren't spelled out on the cards. So they could just change what the magic rule book says about companions. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's been discussed, as we touched on already, has been, you know, you draw one fewer card if you have a companion or something like that. Or it, it goes into your hand instead of being in your sideboard. Uh, so you still have a seven card hand, but you have you always get to have that card in it um, so that discard can interact with it and so forth. Um, I think in other other formats, they may just, you know, straight up ban it. But time, time will tell. And this is going to be the first test. However they handle it here sets the template for what's going to happen in Modern and Pioneer and whatever. Hey, I, and, well... And, informs what is likely to happen with companions because though you're right that vintage is certainly a weird scenario it's also not a format they need necessarily to give a shit about legacy is manicured in a much more normal way and certainly what happens with luris and legacy will inform the way they will probably address him in modern as needed I mean, I agree that Vintage is the least relevant format here. I've never debated that for a second. Um, However, every other format has a very clear, easy way to handle it. It's there's there's a very there's a very accessible answer in every format other than Vintage, which is what makes it so fascinating. Um, But, you know, we chatted about this last week and rather than debate on it again, we'll just wait a week and see what ends up happening. Uh, They have several choices available to them. They all feel awkward, um, especially because the decisions they could make in Vintage don't need to be the same ones that get made elsewhere. Like you can just ban the damn card in Legacy and be done with it, but they... The, how they choose to handle in vintage could be different. They might say it's not legal as a companion in vintage, but it's just banned in legacy. Like that seems plausible too. And I don't think they would want to constrain themselves to making the same decisions in modern and legacy where they have other answers based on the decision they make in vintage where it is a thornier subject. Well, we're going to see in a week or two. Uh, and in the meantime... Don't run out and buy Luris. I, I would agree with that. <laughs> the So, Luris is for sure a problem. Companions in general also seem like a problem. Some people in our Discord have been saying, oh, just print way more companions. But it's like, I don't think so. Yeah. This you're, you're talking about fundamentally changing how magic is played. <laughs> right. Just, just print more companions means every magic deck in every constructed format has a companion now. Yeah, yeah. Which is just a different, is a slightly different game. Now, could that work out? Yeah, but the further you go down that path, if it doesn't work out, the worse things get. And you start really pushing people 
you know, you're going to get a crowd of people that will, in fact, quit. That will just say, I don't like where this is headed. This isn't the magic that I know and love. Some people would make noise and then play anyway. Some people would actually walk away. Um, if enough formats got bad all at the same time, and especially if it's in coordination with a lack of available paper play anyway. You, if the mat, if the online play is bad and there's no place to play in paper, then you can really get some disengagement with the brand rolling. I, I could see that being a huge problem uh, if they chose to go the other way and try and make companion more of a thing and add more fuel to the fire, essentially, you know, let's make Lurus worse by just giving you lots more options. Um you know, I, I don't know if you caught it, but Zvi Moshowitz, uh, was who has been one of the vocal uh, opponents of Companions, and you've heard of me reference him a couple times. One of the little tidbits he said was, I remember when the Transformers TCG introduced a mechanic that was roughly similar to Companions. And he said, my buddies and I went to a pre-release for that set, played the pre-release, and all went, yep, we're done with this, and never played another game again. Uh, and I think that a lot of the old guard would probably call it quits if companion became a mainstay because that that would to me represent one of the god i sound like peggy hill um seems like it would represent one of the largest changes in magic design principles and philosophy in god knows how long right like maybe m10 you know, the pl- introduction of Planeswalkers was a pretty big shift to magic, but those are kind of like powerful enchantments and artifacts. Like, I feel like they don't dramatically change the ph- a philosophy of magic in the well, way and, that the and, introduction of companions as essentially a permanent mechanic would. I mean, there are certainly people that argue that Planeswalkers should never have been made either. But the counter to that is that there, most of the ways to interact with other permanents and, and cards in hand in Magic have always applied to Planeswalkers. You can still counter them. You can still discard them before they come out. Up until recently, they tended to be expensive enough that you had time to set up and do that. Um, you can attack them down. You can ignore them and go straight to the face. There, there's been ways to work with them. I would argue that Planeswalkers have ended up a problem. Jace the Mind Sculptor, Oko, etc., but that, by and large, that's because they were too pushed in design. That yes. development didn't and playtesting didn't do their job and balance the cards properly. Like people have spoken at length and written at length about how Oko just needed some tweaks and probably would have been fine. Yes, I would agree with you that it's plain individual planeswalkers have been a problem, but as a general card type and as a introduction to the game of magic, we're not a dramatic departure from what the game was doing otherwise. And, you know, specific instances aside fit within the, the framework of magic, but a change such that you are now guaranteed to start with specific card or cards in your hand and everyone in the room is doing that begins to press on the balance and variance inherent in magic. Um, and, you know, they talk about the mana system being the gr- multiple designers have talked about the, the mana system being the greatest strength of magic. Um, and basically that the design of that and what it leads to makes games good. Uh, and this is sort of a step in the opposite direction of that. 
companions sort of move in the other direction of the mana system, essentially. So that's what I mean when I say they are a significant change in the philosophy of the game, one that I don't think we've ever really seen before. I would also argue that one of the reasons that Commander has been such a juggernaut over the last five years is that many Magic players have discovered over time that they don't actually want to be playing the tightest decks possible. They don't want the to be putting in hundreds of reps on extremely predictable play patterns in constructed formats every Friday night at FNM. Lots of Magic players discovered that embracing their inner Johnnies or Timmies or, or whatever the female equivalents are is, is worth, is, is something well worth pursuing. And that there was a lot of enjoyment in playing with more people, the social aspect of commander, but also playing singleton decks where sure you're, you're still building your deck around a theme, but you have a lot more control over what power level you want to bring to the table. Hence this whole EDH versus CDH debate. Um, and, that one of the things that Companions does is pull you in the opposite direction. It provides an extreme level of reliability in terms of what your your core uh, deck theme, when your core deck theme will emerge in play. Because if you're running Lurus, it means you've built around Lurus, which means that dropping Lurus at the appropriate time, and it's not necessarily turn three, it's not that it, Lurus is an early drop per se, as that it might be on a turn four or five when Lurus will immediately gain you value provides an engine that you can so reliably build around because as we you know we were talking about the plane bound accomplice uh apprentice and luca and how you know these glass cannon decks that want to combo you out with if they have the correct three card combo often don't go the distance in a format because if they only have that one angle of attack they don't have a certain level of consistency they can, might also be able to be approached in a certain way for instance you know older versions of dredge their uh weakness to things like rest in peace or whatever um whereas the companions allow you to play a great seven opening hand and sometimes you can just keep a worse hand because you know your companions are going to be coming out and will help save the day etc etc all of that has led to i think companion being the worst received mechanic in quite some time and the some of the major personalities over at Wizards of Design and Development have certainly been interacting with the community, especially on Twitter lately, um, trying to suss out. I, I think I think a combination of trying to suss out how the community feels about things and why, but also trying to kind of surreptitiously inject memes into the community. Um, if I'm reading their actions correctly, so let me give you an example. Uh, Mark Rosewater, lead design at Wizards, posted three relevant questions. Did you, did you just give Mark Rosewater an introduction on this podcast? Wow. <laughs> who is listening to this that doesn't yeah. know who Mark Rosewater is? Fair enough. So Mark on May 7th posts, Inquiring minds want to know, while R&D tries to support innovation and balance, the two often fight with each other. Which of the two do you personally believe R&D should prioritize? Uh, this came out as... There was two options, innovation or balance. Innovation got 41%, balance got 58%. So that's a pretty clear vote from the community with, you know, almost two-thirds of the community saying we would rather have balanced formats if we have to choose between balance or innovation. And I think that makes sense. People want don't want to people want to be able to reliably buy cards, build decks, and play them 
and not have it lead to uh, a lack of diversity, hence boredom, or rage quitting, people not wanting to play in a format because their deck can't compete. They don't want to have to worry about having to sell cards that are likely going to get banned, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, you know, so I have one, I think that in terms of the popularity split, I think part of it is that people recognize that balance is, requires more intention than innovation does. Innovation will probably come fairly naturally. Um, and actually, if you're familiar with a lot of any of Rosewater's other writings, he talks about how the thing that will kill magic will not be power creep. It will be complexity creep. So it seems like innovation is something that's just always going to be there as they try and make a new cards for standard all the time. They're forced down that road. Balance does not come naturally. You have to, you have to struggle to try and keep that forefront. So I would think that, you know, if, if the guy who's in charge of designing magic is asking this question, it's like, focus on the one that you have to focus on. The other one will come on its own. Uh, but this whole question was bad. I think. And, I, you know, I don't know how intentional it was. One, I don't, I'm not familiar with Rosewater's social media patterns in this, in, in the context that like, is he just wandering through his kitchen and a question strikes him and he fires off a tweet while he's getting something out of his refrigerator? Or did he spend some time thinking about this and really try and craft a fat, you know, question with potentially ulterior motives? And the reason that I, that I highlight that is that, this question, I believe, starts with a false dichotomy. Which would you rather have, innovation or balance? Well, hold on a second. You have already given me the framing that I have to choose one or the other and that they are mutually exclusive, that they're opposite ends of a spectrum. And I reject that premises, but simply by answering that question, you are buying into the premises he has set out for you, which makes it feel manipulative if I'm being, if I'm not giving him any benefit of the doubt at all. I agree with you 100% here. And the reason is that they shouldn't exist on a spectrum. They should be twin goals. You want to be both innovative in the sense that you keep your audience excited to buy the product and engage with the brand, but you also want to be, uh, you want to be balanced because you want people, you want to encourage people to continue their engagement. So you want to give the ideal magic card is one that both surprises me and is balanced. It's not, to me, one or the other. And when you're designing them, especially since design and development are separate, and, it, and this part I'm not sure all listeners are fully aware of, that when they're designing this game, there is a team that is trying to just push cool ideas out there. And then there is a development team who refines those ideas and tries to make sure that they are cohesive in the context of the set as a whole and how they will play out in play patterns. And then more recently, they've added a, an expanded play test team who, you know, play design, whose job is to, for core key formats, probably most specifically standard and limited, with a much, uh, it seems, a much lesser focus on anything else, um, make sure that the whole thing hangs together properly and that nothing is too busted. So, that being the case, your ideal magic cards should be stuff that do both of those things. And it doesn't surprise me that design doesn't worry too much about balance because that's not really their job. But the team as a whole 
should absolutely be testing things into the ground to make sure that they're balanced. And with something like an Oko, it's such a big, like, triple question mark for everybody because you don't need to play for Oko for more than a couple hours in almost any deck. Like, one of the things about Oko was that he just went anywhere. It wasn't that you had to be on Oko's theme to make him work. You don't even have the kind of restrictions like Luris where everything's got to be, all your permanents have to be two or less. Oko's just good all over the place. Like, you saw Oko po- popping up in decks that had you would never have expected to run a Planeswalker because he was so efficient at doing the things that he did. He was just so good on on that curve that he just was busted all over the place. They should have caught that. So you have to end up wondering, are they putting busted cards out on purpose? You and I had this conversation a while back where I put the tinfoil hat on for a second and said, are they just printing cards intending to ban them? You know, do they put these cards out so that people get really excited and the formats shift hard, which keeps things fresh, and then they get fresh again because you ban them? Is the whole premise here to never let anything settle? Put that whole thing aside, because we're not, not going to retread that conversation. But let's keep that in mind as we move on to his second question of the week. Inquiring minds want to know, our goal is to do both, but if you had to pick one, which do you prefer? That the set matches assumptions, or that the set's execution surprises? And in this case, I was actually kind of surprised by this result. Two-thirds of people, 67%, said they would rather have the set surprise them than that it would match their expectations. I wonder how many of those were people who said that tongue-in-cheek because they have low expectations. I don't have any way to know if that's the case, but that's the first thing that I wonder when I read that. Well, I mean, I, I read this as people saying they want to be surprised. But I got the sense that Mara was coming at it more from a if we surprise you too much, we might miss the mark of what a magic player wants. And we're worried that if we go too far, like I almost read this, like reading between the lines, it was almost like him saying, listen, I've got tons of wild ideas, but it won't be the magic you know and love. And we don't think you can handle that. So we're, we are reluctant to go there. It's not that we couldn't give you something even crazier than companions and planeswalkers, We've got lots of that stuff on file. It just doesn't necessarily... We we're not sure it's Magic the brand. Yeah. Well, that makes... That doesn't surprise me knowing what I know of Rosewater. And I, and I would imagine a lot of players don't quite get that when he talks about that. Like, you guys... You know, he's given some indications and hints before when he talks about stuff they design. Be like, well, the, the, the breadth of cards they could put out is a lot uh there's a lot of design space that they haven't really explored that people wonder about and it's like yeah but that begins to maybe not look like what you want magic to look like type of thing so i I think my favorite magic design like if i'm picking if i have my druthers about how to construct a magic set ideal for me and the way i'm the different formats i will choose to play it in i just want interlocking puzzle pieces I want a whole bunch. I don't care if you're reusing mechanics. I just want the deck, the cards, the themes that you lay out to be overlapping, relatively subtle, but have all sorts of cool compounding benefit. Where if I have this card on the table, it's good by itself. 
if I have this, this or a bunch of others with it, it starts to create synergies. And then as I start to add additional puzzle pieces, the synergies compound and things get all crazy and cool and reward technical play and whatever. If you can present that product to me, then I will be getting what I need out of magic. But the magic community is very diverse and we all are looking for different things out of our set. Some people just want more cute kittens in their set. Like there are, there is clearly a theme of cute stuff for animal lovers in Ikoria, which misses me by a wild, a wide mark, but probably hits straight home for a lot of other people. And, you know, not everything is mechanical or play design based. Like a lot of this stuff comes from like uh, artistic direction marketing um and you know the godzilla thing is all about creating overlapping uh venn diagrams with other nerd fan bases to try to pull people into the game so there's a lot going on now his third question was inquiring minds want to know what is the largest tournament format that should be impacted and by largest Mm -hmm. he means oldest um aka cards Uh, in the set wait did he clarify sorry did he clarify that no, it's definitely what he meant. He doesn't mean largest is in total number of cards. He means largest as in the, the formats are older, so they're naturally bigger. Um, what is the largest tournament format that should be impacted, a.k.a. cards in the set get played in it, not that it necessarily warps the metagame, by every standard legal set? So sets that, sets that are coming out, which are primarily designed for standard, how far back should they push? And he gave the options of Vintage Legacy, Modern, Pioneer, and Standard. The biggest, this is 10,000 votes on this. There was a lot of engagement on this. Rosewater has 100,000 followers and 10% of them responded to this. So 37, so far, I guess we're at final results now. Uh, finished yesterday. So final results were 37% of people said that standard is as far back as should be impacted. Then it was 20% roughly for Pioneer, 25% for Modern, and 20% for Vintage. So I read this as nobody was really sure about the other three, but the strong, the, the contingent of responders that felt most strongly was standard. That seems really strange to me. That to me says people who are answering this either basically either don't know what they're saying or don't know magic don't understand what magic's supposed to be because it, I don't think how you, I don't think there's any defensible answer. I don't think you can defend answering standard here. It's really weird. I mean, you can still argue that you got to look at the data correctly. 37% said standard, but that means all the rest of the people thought it was okay in at least pioneer. And the number drops off as you get further back to modern and legacy. I mean, I would hope they want the cards. Like that means one third of people who follow Mike Mark Rosewater think that cards should have no bearing on magic outside of standard. Like what the hell do they think is going on? What do they think those other formats are? If you had asked me prior to this online dialogue, what I thought they thought we thought (laughs) (laughs) it would be that in a standard legal set, 300 cards or whatever, that there are going to be, five to ten cards that will be good enough for modern legacy vintage on a declining scale and that now that there's pioneer the number is going to be higher but that that number will get closer and closer to the modern number as pioneer gets bigger and bigger because we've talked about in the past how 
out far enough, Pioneer and Pioneer and Modern cannot coexist because they will eventually become the same format. Mm-hmm. If you go far enough out, like one will always have fetches and the other will not, but eventually mana issues will be fixed in other ways in Pioneer that you'll probably be able to play the same decks. Yeah. By and large. So I, I, I think this question is, is odd from that perspective because don't we all just agree that it's a declining scale, that most of the cards are for limited, a smaller pool is for standard constructed, and then even smaller and smaller pools for each of these formats, right? Like, isn't that what we've always been doing, <laughs> at least for the last 10 years worth of design? And I think the concern that has bubbled up over the last year is that you guys didn't balance, uh, the la- there was a lack of balance on too many cards. Starting in War, Modern Horizons, through to Eldraine, through, uh, less so in Theros Beyond Death, but still some fairly offensive cards printed, like Underworld Breach. Um, and then on into Ikoria, the entire companion mechanic being a problem. Now, this was predicted. They had warned us this was going to be a high-power year. And we've been talking forever. Like, when Oka was a problem in the fall, we were already prognosticating about how the next two sets were going to be just as bad and probably all the way through to Zendikar. And that looks like it's going to be the case. This Teferi core set the summer is probably going to have busted stuff in it. Zendikar is probably going to have busted stuff in it. And I think the real, you know, pointy finger that the community is trying to shove back at Mark is relatively simple. Balance your cards. If a card looks like it's going to end up seeing really broad play, like an Oko, you need to think somebody's job for an entire week should probably be thinking pretty hard about whether the numbers are right on the mythics. Whether whether the numbers are right on, you know, the five rares that you flagged for older format play. If you're going to print a Snapcaster, Mage, Lurus, Oko level card, shouldn't shouldn't it get be getting flagged by all the like professional magic players that you hired to be running play design? Like how how are these people not building decks that are showcasing the ridiculous power of these things and then steamrolling a bunch of other people on the team. They well, you know, somewhere in the midst of all these tweets, him and I don't remember who else it was, we're talking Aaron, about Aaron Forsyth was also chiming in, but sure. Yes. He had some things to say and there was a couple more too, I think. Um or somewhere in the midst of their replies, they talked about how they basically have no bandwidth to um test for other formats. Which I mean, you know, I, I can understand if, if they're saying we don't test formats outside of standard. If that is true, then I can kind of understand maybe how Oko makes it out of stand out into the world. Because if you're only testing standard and your design, your team is off by a, by enough that it looks like Oko's a pillar of the format, but maybe you don't realize how bad he is, then if you're missing the context of how busted that card's going to end up in Pioneer and Modern, then suddenly him looking very good in Standard doesn't look weird because you don't realize that he's just ludicrous. Of course, this leads to the question of, well, how hard is it to have a couple games get played where you have Oko in your deck in Pioneer and Modern to see how busted it is there too. But I'm willing to give them a little more of a break on that because it's, you know, hindsight's 2020, right? 
oh man, how could you have not tested Oko on Pioneer and Modern and see how much of a problem it was going to be? Yeah, all right. But they didn't, maybe they don't realize which cards in Throne of Eldraine they're supposed to care about. Now, it's a 260 card set. They don't need to test all 260 cards in Pioneer. Uh, I'm sure the the Hill Giant doesn't need to get tested in Pioneer, but you're still looking at being able to make a reasonable case that somewhere between five and 20 cards should be tested every set in older formats, which could be a lot to churn through if you don't really care to begin with. But well, I, I, I mean, guess and, I, I, and, and that's just it, right? Like the, I, I have often wondered whether it's the decoupling of wizards bottom line from what happens in the secondary market that leads to play design just not having enough time and budget to get the stuff done right. It's entirely possible that the internal narrative at Wizards is we are primarily people that sell cards to limited players and standard players. Everything else happens after the fact. Or is a, such a smaller percentage of the motivation to interact with the brand that we're going to assume it will be fine. Like, Mark posted like a fairly telling comment along the way in this dialogue where he was saying something like, um, like if it's, if it isn't a problem in standard, it's not a problem somewhere else. We referenced this last week and we, we, we held up Luris to the spotlight and said, yeah, but cards like this, like there are cards that don't make sense in standard because standard isn't, is a slower format that are obviously obviously going to be much, much more busted in older formats. A card like Luris that brings two casting costs or less permanence back from your graveyard obviously gets better and better and better the closer to vintage you get where things cost zero. So <laughs> the, the idea that if it's okay for standard, it, it's fine, we don't need to test it, is, is just wrong. Like it's And silly and seems naive for people that have spent, especially people like Mark, who have spent their whole life designing this game. So... Or a big chunk of it, anyway. And I, I just wonder if the intangible of how important it is, not for necessarily legacy or vintage to succeed, but for Pioneer, Modern, and Commander to represent huge islands of continuing brand engagement and support. And the... Un, the single digit percentage probably not double digit but single digit disengagement from brand stats that they probably don't have eyes on due to all, all these clusterfucks because there's no way for them to easily connect those dots using their current analytics and this brings me back to this you know uh touch point i've made many times about the need for uh total life cycle software if they were captured if they could see my level of interaction at the FM level and my purchases, and we weren't dealing with COVID. I think they would be probably funding play design differently because they would have some very rich data about Luris equals a 30% drop off in play across multiple formats, leads to 28% less people going to Magic Fest in the subsequent months compared to. Uh, and they could they could be running surveys that would measure satisfaction with certain formats, and they could see how that plays out in both single sales, sealed product sales, and attendance. 
And if you had all that data, I, I, I just have so much trouble believing that with access to those analytics that you'd be making the same choices. That's that's tough to say I, because they might look at it in a, in they might look at it as a problem of scale, not of character. Because I can look at you know if if I had magic, if I had data on the play pattern in all facets for every player who plays magic, right? And I can track that. I can magically know all of this about how players behave and I can see the changes in play patterns across every player on the planet as Luris and Yorion get worse and worse in terms of format dominance or Oko. Um, and, and then I can see, you know, all of that. You could, it's possible that you could look at that data and go, the issue isn't that we made Oko, it's that we didn't get rid of them quick enough. Although they did get rid of Oko very quickly. Um or any of these types of cards that are a problem, they could, it might it might the, the the issue may not be that they exist. It just might not might be that they don't act quickly enough. Uh, which which would, would and and you know from their context, they're basing all of this essentially. They're basing success on sales, in which case that that could be proven true. And there's no way for either of us to really have an answer to that, though. Well, and that's one of the other ways, though, that they are insulated from the real picture. Because most sales for a set are front-ended. A lot of the sales take place before the set even lands. So, for instance, Ikoria, you know, people were people were talking about, you know, the, the Death Corona Godzilla. Well, one of our members made the point today about how aren't there actually less of the corrected version than there are of the original version, given that sets, the print run for a set is primarily front-loaded? Like 60 or 70% of all Ikoria that will ever be sold was already committed to press before they made that change? Like, isn't it true that maybe you only, in a booster pack you open a year from now of Ikoria, you might only have a 20 or 30% chance of finding the new version of that card? And if most of their sales take place before they ever have to ban things, you can see the bean canners being like, okay, so we sold our stuff, right? And because they're mad about the other card that you now have to ban, it just encourages them to buy more of the whatever the next set is that comes three months later. Yeah. Or to go back to the well and pick up other cards that didn't matter before because card A right. existed. But now that card A is gone, card B matters. So we get to essentially double dip on the set. That's what I mean. And that's why and when you talk about, the, you know, if they could see your player play pattern that they would do play design differently. And I'm like, that's why I kind of wonder if that's true. Well, and part of it is that if there's a couple of things that could make things really different. If sets were once per year, you would approach it very differently. (laughs) Absolutely, you'd approach it very differently. Because if Eldraine lasted a year before a new product came out and you banned it and that was the best mythic in the set and nobody wants to open your booster packs anymore, you got a real sales problem. So one of the things that contributes to this as being an ongoing issue, I think, is the frequency of product release and the benefit to them of keeping things churning. Now, one of the other things is that they are they don't make it well, it's less true now than it was 5 years ago, but they still don't really have access to the singles market. Secret layer is their attempt to change that, but that's still a dipping your toe in the water kind of scenario. If they sold all singles, if Wizards if the LGS network was just all owned by Hasbro, I think this would be handled very differently 
because they would care a lot more about the trailing sales. And we've talked in the past about how the secondary market for Magic might actually be bigger than the primary market. You know, if, if Wizards does $600 million a year on the brand, maybe the secondary market, all told, all accessories, all GP trips, all single sales, all whatever, that doesn't go to Wizards is something like a billion plus. That might be true. And, and, I mean, if, it, it, and if it's true, it certainly contributes to the logic here. If you're, I will just chime in that if you're including costs like travel costs, then I think it's not even close. I think that secondary market is bigger. So... Uh, Aaron Forsyth posted his own question. This is the uh, like team lead for Magic. What's his actual title these days? He is the uh, Vice President uh, Design at okay. Magic the Gathering TCG. So he's not just Magic anymore. He's overseeing all of their card games, yeah. uh, I think. So random thought exercise regarding a perpetual game and power inflation. The statement, the best green two drop will, that will ever exist has already been printed. Do you hope that it is true or do you hope that that is not true? And I, I feel like it's important to point out here that he quickly regretted using green to drop because and some of our listeners like me were probably thinking Tarmogoyf as soon as I read that. Uh, but in fact, there's actually a better green to drop, a Termit Druid, uh, the power level, of which is insane. And the reason you don't realize how powerful that card is is because no one's ever cast it against you because it's banned most places because it's so good. Uh, but let's substitute any random color and mana cost in for green two drop. It's, it, you know, it, it, at this particular combination of cost and color, regardless of what it is, is the best, does the best version already exist? Well, and but the thing is that, or I do don't you think want it to exist? Well, that's just it. I, I think the answer, this is another weird question because it depends on whether or not you've made a mistake on that series of axes or not. If you look at the intersection of casting cost and color, blue three drop, for instance, I can't think of one that is busted. I mean, permanence anyway. Uh, Narset maybe is, is a pretty strong card. If you include Teferi Time Raveler, that's a pretty strong card. Um, but... It's not about whether I, I don't think you can have that conversation out of context. I think you're absolute it's an absolutely contextual question, and it needs to be pinned on a certain card. So if, if he was thinking Tarmogoyf, and the question is, generally speaking, do you want us to print stuff better than Tarmogoyf or not? That's I, that's what I think he's getting at. I, um, no, see, I, I don't I don't agree. I think the concept. I think you. I think this is specifically intended to be divorced from the specifics it's it's not about a specific color and cost combination it's in general do you think that we should have already found the limits of most magic cards should we have already should we be at a point where we've basically hit the power level ceiling on most cards and in general, we're, we're just living in the space carved out by those that exist. Or do you want us to continue to push the boundaries in the vein of Time Raveler and Oko and things of that nature? And maybe not push that hard all at once, but to continually push the boundaries such that Magic 20 years from now has cards that are much higher power that are higher power level than almost everything that exists today. And so I think it's really, 
I'm not sure how relevant it is to have the discussion, though, without the context. Because if you look at something like, can we print a lightning bolt that deals four? That really messes with the math of the game. (laughs) It invalidates so much of the game so quickly that you have created a much bigger problem than you could ever have hoped to have been solving by printing that card. It's, I think... If we ask, should we print that card, the vast majority of players would agree no. Something like Hogak, on the other hand, is an interesting design experiment that was just wasn't balanced properly. If, if you had altered the casting cost of that card, if you had changed what the plus uh, and minus did on Oko, you could have achieved an interesting high power card that was just properly balanced for the intended formats. But you didn't complete the process of balancing the card. And so you created something that was far, far too easy to cast. You created something that was far, far too easy to slip into other decks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, no, you shouldn't be uh, deliberately changing the baseline power curve by making four damage lightning bolt. You should absolutely be trying to create niche, interesting variants on past and, and future concepts and then balancing the shit out of them. Like at at at, bo- at the the bottom line for me for all of these questions is you're asking the wrong question. The only question I care about is do you want us to spend more time balancing this game? <laughs> and well, the answer is absolutely spend more time and money balancing the game. The thing is I think you you answered his question there in your comments. You said uh, I don't want that card to be the most powerful one that exists. You basically said, I want you to keep finding cool combinations in a combination in terms of cost, keywords, power, toughness, etc. Keep finding those, keep making them, just try and keep them balanced. But balance doesn't necessarily mean keep the power level down. It just means keep them within the realm of what else, what the rest of magic is trying to do. But you could increase the power level of magic by, I don't know, 4% every year. It would barely, probably wouldn't be noticeable. But when you got five or 10 years down the road, suddenly you'd realize that everything today is more powerful than, almost everything today is more powerful than almost everything that came before it, which is uh, actually pretty true right now. Mm-hmm. If you if you I go mean, back if you if you go back and do a draft of a set from 15 years ago, every like, you you're, you realize that you only get playable cards in the first six or seven picks, and then it just trails off to nothing. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ikoria, you you could get past a 14th pick that might actually get played. Well, Matt, and and you know that that's a big part of the balance half of this equation is magic is considerably more balanced today than it used to be. Um, I mean, yes, old old draft formats are notorious for basically being unplayable because there were several 14s in a set, uh, and the rest of it is ones and twos. But I'm not even talking about um, you know limited per se. I mean, look at legacy, legacy looks nothing today like it did a handful of years ago and it plays a lot of very recent cards but that was also true two years ago two years ago it played a lot of recent cards and the only standouts were stuff from the early days of magic that were way above curve and you know weren't intended to be basically almost all of magic pre eighth edition is bad 
has all been overpowered at this point with an extremely small minority of cards being the exception and that minority of cards being stuff that you see played in Legacy, like Grimonolith or whatever. Like every other Magic card printed before 8th edition is trash. Um, And I mean, look at Crawworm, for example, right? Crawworm was uh, a 4GG, 6 mana for a 6-4 creature. And that used to be... That was an exciting card to open in 1994. Exactly, and that set the bar for that power casting cost. And then what did they print? Some uncommon in Icoria is like six for like a seven six, and it got trample and activated ability. I don't know. It's got a bunch of crap on it. It's a lot better than Crawworm. So like they've they've already they have been operating on the assumption that at any given time most players would say, I do not want the current slate of magic cards to be the most powerful versions that that will ever exist i want you to keep finding more powerful ones uh and and that's exactly what you said even though you didn't say that is what you said let me let me you want it all balanced no 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 let me let let me restate then and i think i've got a good example if if the question easiest analog to his question is tarmogoy versus some other green two drop then look at fiend artisan from icoria right that's probably the best constructed mythic in the set other it's either that or luca probably um and fiend artisan is on the surface a powerful mythic green two drop so it is a spiritual successor at least to tarmogoyf i think they are two cards worth bringing in looping into this conversation because tarmogoyf is a very pushed magic card was starting to fall off the power curve now gets a little bit of a resurgence here with Luris. Is Fiend Artisan better or worse than Tarmogoyf? I think it depends on the rest of the deck, and that's what I'm looking for. Keep printing Tarmogoyfs, but make them different and interesting so that they fit into different approaches to the game so that you expand the options for players within formats. I don't want a narrow format. When Modern has had 20 viable decks, I've been most happy in Modern. I've been most committed and confident that Modern would survive previous to the whole pioneer interference shenanigans that's what i want to see i want the cards balanced but i want them all about the same power level if they're intended for high power formats if you're going to print a card that could be good like oko into every format all the way back to vintage just make sure you balance that card that 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 you experiment with it and push it to its limits and when it seems to be dominant in a format Consider whether it's dominant in enough formats that you might want to dial things down a bit. Because if a card is ridiculous in Vintage, but no big deal anywhere else, that's fine. Like, Vintage players might not like it, but that it really is fine. But I'm talking about how the card plays in Commander, how the card plays in Modern, and Pioneer. So a better example recently is something like Urza. Urza's pretty busted. It's hard to build an Urza deck in EDH and not have it be busted. You have to deliberately sabotage yourself. And it's been doing tons of work since the day it debuted in Modern in all sorts of different configurations where the consistent portion is Urza, Ice Fang, Coatl, then later Gilded Goose, and now you're seeing Uros all the time. Those cards are so pushed. Are they a problem? It's borderline. But if you tell me you balanced it and you've seen further into the future than I can see and it plays out that way, you know, Urza has not unbalanced modern. Das's Oracle has not unbalanced modern or pioneer. 
You know, everybody thought the inverter decks was gonna were gonna require a banning, and they just didn't get there. Underworld Breach hasn't proven to be problematic yet, even in Pioneer. So it's possible to balance cards so that they have definite impacts in formats, do represent uh shoulder-to-shoulder power levels, you know, Underworld Breach versus Yawgmoth's Will. Not the you know when when it came out and debuted, we <laughs> everybody had the discussion, including us, about how Yagmos Will is not the kind of card I would be looking to recreate. So so busted. Everybody knew it was busted. Why try to recreate the card at all? But trying to recreate Tarmogoyf seems fine. I I think that you are attempting to make the you are attempting to make the claim that you you think the answer to Aaron Forsyth's question should be that you already want the most powerful versions of cards to exist. That's what you're trying to sell me on. But when I'm listening to you, I'm hearing the opposite. Well, I, I suspect I'm hearing you don't want cards heads and shoulders above the competition, but you want them to keep edging each other out. No, I'm no, 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 no. I'm suggest no, I'm saying that I want the formats to be more diverse. Give me five different green two drops all about the same power level whose power whose where the leveraging of that power level depends on how I construct the rest of my deck. Tarmogoyf wants you to fill up the graveyard with a whole bunch of different card types. So you got to build the deck that way. Fiend Artisan wants a bunch of creatures specifically in your graveyard and wants you to have some kind of birthing pod-esque shenanigans so that you can ramp up into your other combos. Well, those are, di- those what, are different Those are different cards, but they're both very powerful. They're different cards, but if we had some magical scale that we could define an objective power level to them, uh, you would see a, a marked upward trend through magic's history and i think that this recent stuff is no different they're just bigger spikes on that scale um and a card can be you can have cards that are all slightly different than tarmogoyf that fill different roles but if we have this objective power level value they're going to some of them are going to end up being better than tarmogoyf but as long as they feel like they're kind of close then it's going to be okay the the way I would I would be looking to objectively measure the success of this paradigm I'm I'm championing is that the cards coexist in different decks in the format, and that neither of those decks has a win percentage that is unhealthy because I think win mid to long term win percentage of a card in a format its ubiquity across formats ubiquity across archetypes are the surest fire indicators that you've got a problem and that's why everybody knows Luris is going to catch a ban. Because he's everywhere. And and that's the, the metrics that the community has taught itself to use to predict that something is going to get banned. It's showing up in too many different kinds of decks. It's filling up more than half of a top eight. It's always played as four ofs. In the case of Luris, people are like warping their, you know, getting rid of Liliana the Veil because having a three drop that you get every game is just so good that you can just play the two drop or less permanence in Jund and you'll be fine. All right. Let me give you a scenario. Let's say for sake of argument right now, Tarmogoyf is in, I don't know, 20% of green decks in Legacy. Okay. One in five, one in five decks. Well, archetype wise, archetype wise, but it doesn't really matter. 20%. Tarmogoyf is in 20% of green decks in Legacy. They print a card, another green two drop. He's pretty good. And it, it, it it is now it takes about it takes about a quarter of Tarmogoyf's market share. So now Tarmogoyf drops to about fifteen percent of green decks, but this other card is in five percent of green decks. You with me so far? Now they do this every year, 
And every year, Tarmogoyf's percentage of the market share drops by 1% to 3%. These other green two drops are sort of spreading out amongst them to the point that you have like, I don't know, let's say five or six green two drops and they all share like a 2 or 3% market share. Tarmogoyf is now in way fewer decks than it used to be. But all and all of these other green cards are kind of filling in where that used to do work. Now, if we keep going down that path, eventually Tarmogoyf isn't really in Legacy anymore. There, there's all these different niches that these other cards just end up filling better to the point where Tarmogoyf isn't played in the format at this point because it's, it's just well, no matter what you want to do, there's another card that does it better than what Tarmogoyf could do for you. Uh, in this scenario, I would argue that the power level pushed Tarmogoyf out. But it sound, but as you're describing it, this is what you are telling me you want to see. I, I'm arguing that it's not power level. I'm arguing that diminishing percentage of meta is a good thing and has nothing to do with power level. It has to do with options. The I, I'm arguing that the ideal magic format is one that has um, many options, but not so many that you can't prep for the metagame because there have been pros who have pointed out in the past that say you had a hundred deck metagame then your trip to the table becomes so much of a coin flip that it's very frustrating because you have there's too many things to prepare for you have no idea what you're going to play against so your sideboard is just a random crapshoot of guesswork and it takes some of the strategy out of the action so probably probably 15 to 20 tier s one and 1.5 decks is something which we've seen in modern has felt like one of the most healthiest formats of all time. Like modern with 20 decks is about as good as I've ever seen magic get. And that you're aiming for not perfection. Like you're not just going to have infinitely dividing formats. That's not going to happen. A card like Tarmogoyf can get pushed off the table because you're never going to perfectly balance everything. And so you will, you're correct in saying that they will edge a new card will that is aimed at Tarmogoyf's level can edge Tarmogoyf out of the format. And indeed, we've already seen it. Tarmogoyf was off the table for a while because Jund was off the table for a while because the format was trending combo. So I'm, I'm just aiming for them to try to balance the card, to, to look at the power curve of the game in each form, format and say, this is the turn where you die, which we know they've done. And say, does this card make, push the power curve in the format? Hold it steady or drop or set the bar below, in which case it's probably not going to make it in that format. They sh- should be able to do that. They should have analytics tools that have are predictive in terms of damage output per turn, casting cost, etc. And be able to say, Oko probably needs a tweak plus one there. Uh, uh, well, okay. So that, 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 that needs to be a minus one instead of a plus one. Uh, whether or not... I, 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 I can't debate whether or not they should have the tools to be able to do that. That seems to me like I mean, a... Br- six, it's a $600 million brand. Yeah, I, I still don't think... I think that Magic is too complex for that to work. Well, let me, um, let, let me ask you a question. You, you're familiar with Moneyball and baseball, right? Uh, yeah, I actually saw that movie too. Perfect. So do you think that Magic has gone through its Moneyball period? Uh, no, I, I would argue that I don't think that can exist. Well, okay. So wait, when you say Moneyball, do you mean figuring out the metric data driven brand management and card design? 
I I guess I could argue that it's gotten probably about as good as it feels like it could. It's definitely better today than it was 5, 10, 20 years ago. But I also don't think that you can at least. OK, so maybe I'm mixing your questions up. I think it's I think it's better than it, than it ever, ever has been and is probably pretty much there. It feels like or we're we're not we're not a magnitude of an order of magnitude off of where it could land. I think that in terms of trying to develop a statistic or analytics tools to design cards and rein in the power level is not fun is not feasible fundamentally not feasible for the game but those are two different questions so you you don't think it's feasible for the game no i don't uh, and i think the fact that it's uh touring complete sort of proves Sort of, sort of indicates the reason why. Yeah, see, I think we're going to see a future for Magic where when quantum computing and AI come online, Magic's going to change dramatically and will be perfected. It's, it's, I, I believe that there's a lot of feel-driven design going on. And if you think about who Mero is, what he is, his fundamental skill sets, where he comes from, he is... Uh, concept and narrative driven individual Mm -hmm. i think this game needs a stats head who is deep in the spreadsheets to balance this game and i'm not it's unclear to me whether there is somebody in the at the approval end of set design that is either um activated and empowered to drive numerical evaluations or let me put it this way i would argue that magic arena and magic online have provided them with a wealth of data that they are clearly leaning on we know that most of the um, banning decisions are based on dominance on magic online and that expanding that data, that data analytics suite to cover a lot of other angles would be greatly beneficial to the game and greatly beneficial to the brand because it's not just about designing cards it's about designing it's about balancing formats it's about understanding the order of priority for formats and figuring out which ones are worth addressing which aren't cuz not every format is worth addressing or trying to balance for I don't give a shit whether they balance for vintage. I don't care that the vintage people are upset. They're such a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of the population. They can be handled through the occasional banning and everything will be fine. But I think they should be testing to a much higher degree of specificity for the core formats, limited, standard, pioneer, modern, and EDH. Um, Those formats in particular are extremely important to the brand overall and keeping them balanced seems important. I, if there is a uh, latent, unseen motivation to keep things unbalanced so that it keeps things moving, then I wish they would address that in a different way. Well, I I think that uh, as a player, I definitely get why you want them to keep the major formats, you know, I, I even, I'd even go to say standard and pioneer and, and maybe modern more balanced. I get why wizards is fine. Not having that be the case. Um, or at least, you know, I think that what we're experiencing right now might be a little too much, but I think there's definitely room between what we have now and like, 
pr- you know, prior eras of magic where there were no standard bannings. I think that Wizards is probably completely happy to have the right answer be somewhere between those goalposts. And even if it rankles players a little bit, it probably is good ultimately good for the game it in what it produces not just in sales but um cultural moments and conversation points and histories within the game that are exciting and are fun fun to look back at wait wait, wait. and to, to your to your other point about the the analytics and the stat based here's my example i don't think you can build a piece of software right now that can tell you that skull clamp should not have been switched to plus one minus one i don't know how you could Mm. i don't know how you could possibly return that answer without simply grinding without having a tool that could grind a you know several thousand games of magic automated but but to figure that out but that's what quantum's going to do right like that's well that's that's the that's the jump in processing power you're asking me to see past the singularity like coming come, <laughs> come on right like like quantum like mad like quantum computing arrives and we're arguing about whether magic's going to be balanced like who gives yeah. a shit like that's yeah, just fair. such a fair 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 <laughs> so <laughs> point taken but the um you're a pc gaming guy and you're well aware that there are tons of quality of life improvement patches made aware, made possible from them being deep in the analytics, running massive spreadsheets on the results of little tweaks to, uh, you know, the sixth most used ability on your Diablo three character and how making that plus seven instead of plus five makes all the difference in the world. And I'm a Call of Duty player, Call of Duty constantly shifting around the balance of various weapons, how much damage, how much drop off, how much spread etc etc and they are because they have a wealth of like a constant stream of millions and millions of data points they are refining their game all the time and magic doesn't have access to the paper side of that at all but they could still in my opinion be doing much more to lean into the analytics to try to mine the connection between card balance format maintenance and brand interaction and spend that that is if i was running marketing over there that's what i would be pushing for if i was vp marketing at watsi i would be trying to have those conversations with mark and aaron to say this is where we this is the end goal a game that that maximizes revenue and profit because it's so damn good and while i recognize that you guys want to push uh innovation innovation is not the same as breaking your game you should be able to make a new kind of card without making that card much more powerful than the other cards in the formats you intend to address the uh, okay so if you're talking about trying to like maximize profit i mean that is essentially what the, that, that's fine right i think that's a different discussion but um, well, I'm, I'm purely from I'm, a marketing and brand angle. But I'm advancing the the agenda from what's good for the game is what results in all of us engaging more, which will naturally make them more money. That's really so, okay. what I'm getting. That's really what I'm getting so, at. Oh. And I and I'm tabling the argument, which could be disproven because I don't have enough of the facts that it's better that they will make more money overall with less bannings than more. But I suspect well, they may disagree. 
Yeah, so that's that's one of those things that we can debate about time, you know, until time comes to an end. But you know, we don't have the data they do, so all we can do is armchair about it. As to your PC gaming side of your comment, uh, I mean, I could break this into two halves. Is one, um, yes, they do all of that da- all that data analytics for sure. Uh, that's what these balance patches are over and over and over again. You know, bullet drop off and how soon the damage has to change and damage for bullet and blah, blah, blah. Uh, one, all these companies do that uh, and they get it wrong all the time. Like all the time. Balance patches in every game I have ever played and seen, people complain that it's wrong, um, that they got it wrong. And not only that, we have seen, and I'm sure you've seen in Call of Duty and I've seen plenty of games I've played where they make a balance change and everyone's like, this is stupid. This change is bad. And the company comes back and is like, uh, you know, this is the data we're looking at and the data supports our claim. Like you guys say this weapon is overpowered, but look at the win rates. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Like the numbers support our claim that it's not overpowered. You guys just kind of say it is, but people still get angry about it. So they end up changing it because even if the numbers tell one story, player perception is strong enough that like it kind of overrides the data. So, and it's not to say that those data teams are doing it wrong, just that I think this type of stuff is very difficult when you, you know, to the, to the point where if nobody else in the world is really doing it that well, I can't blame wizards for not pulling it off in what is, uh, I think a more difficult realm to pull it off on. And, and the other half of all of this is that we're talking about making retroactive balance changes, looking at, God knows how many millions of riffs in Diablo 3 or matches played in Call of Duty and then using information that has occurred to make changes. Wizards does not get that with magic. Wizards cannot make changes to the magic cards after they've been released. So they have to somehow figure out those data analytic points without the sample size. And I just don't see how you do the only way to do that that I can imagine in in any way that is reliable is to generate millions of played games uh you know magically automatically and then bake that data and try and make some decisions based off of and go oh i guess if skull clamp is plus one minus one actually the computer tells us the format will degenerate into this card mattering being really powerful so we should go change it but again that's like that's not reasonable with today's power level and because magic is so complex touring complete i don't think that's reasonably possible so i you know with pc games you're talking about looking at past events and changing things magic has to make that decision without the sample size and i just don't see how that's possible well i i would argue that if you look at what's happened with hearthstone balancing over time it's very clear that they could be balancing these cards if they were willing to test them at with different numbers on you can you can declare a weekend for modern players where you're like Half of you this weekend are going to have different stats on your Okos. Test that out for us. There's going to be prizes and free packs or whatever. And we're just going to gather some stats and figure out if we tweak this, how does it change dominance? Does dominance go from 57% to 51.5 where we're much more comfortable with it? Fantastic. Let's keep that change. And the problem with Magic, of course, is that the reason they don't do that is, well, putting aside the fact that they've underfunded Magic Online in favor of Magic Arena, and Magic Arena is only about a couple of specific formats that are true core, and so these other formats aren't really getting much love as a result. Okay, put that all aside for a second. The bigger issue is that they don't want to do any of that testing because they know they would then have to admit they were wrong publicly, make the change digitally, and then have it out of sync with the paper world, which is just a complete non-starter. 
Well, oh, yes, I, I yeah, that, that you can't make those changes in paper. Clearly, uh, you could I, you could see them doing that. Like, okay, Oko is busted, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna give you two weeks in you know these modern events or what have you, where Oko now costs four instead of three, um, and we're not doing that because we are planning on changing Oko, but we want to see how much does this one mana cost change the power level of the card. If we tweak this one dial, this one knob, one notch, and then give it another couple thousand repetitions, what changes? And then we're going to use that information to feed our future decisions. So we have this Planeswalker in play design right now that looks like it might be too good. How much does it depower it to increase the mana cost by one? Um you could see that. I could see them trying to do that, right? Like change knobs on cards temporarily with the intention of never changing them permanently, but using that information to fuel future decisions. Maybe it seems like there's probably a lot of problems with that type of approach. And I imagine that some of the uh, more vocal magic professionals who are, I think, very knowledgeable about game design in general would tell you, you don't have to run those uh, I'm going to call them simulations, even though they're not, to get that information. Like you should be able to look at the data you have and also your knowledge of game design to to understand like how much changing Oko's power by one should be. You don't have to run this experiment. You should kind of already know what that's going to do. Um, and, 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 and if you're talking about trying to dial it in to within only a couple degrees, like to keep the card just from going to over, you know, we're trying to land the card somewhere between very good, but not overpowered. You, that's going to be so situation specific that figuring out whether changing, you know, Oak was powered by one, you know, what impact does that have and how can we use that on this planeswalker we haven't released yet? Uh, it's not going to be apples to apples enough that you can control within that variance. Basically the data you're going to collect isn't going to be specific enough to what you're trying to solve. So it's really not even going to accomplish what you want it to accomplish anyways. That I, that's, would be my expectation. I, I think there are certainly cards and scenarios where that might be true. But I also think that there are situations like, I think most people would agree that if Hogak costed two more and if Oko had been a minus instead of a plus, things would have been different. The And some of that only came out hindsight. But again, <laughs> I'd argue that's that's because of bad testing. And I, I do at least wonder whether they shouldn't just be trying to launch a program again, uh, tie all the dots together. And part of that is more promos for players. And some of those promos should just be fixed cards. Let people trade in Okos at their LGS for a fixed Oko and put the card back in circulation. Once you're confident that you've tested it out. There's, I think there's, there's, those are big wins because then if you have to ban something, you can move quicker and be more decisive because there's going to be, uh, a promise and it doesn't necessarily need to be with every banning but that once per quarter or something out of the available cards that might have needed to be banned you might choose to fix one you might do a different promo instead and just let leave dead well enough alone like for instance with Luris, i don't think tweaking the casting cost would necessarily fix anything but i'm not 100 sure whether making that a four casting cost card is going to change much but why not why not leave that door a little ajar? Because you're driving traffic into your LGS. That leads to other brand touch points and experiences. They don't just trade in the card, they buy fifty dollars worth of product. Like there's 
big reasons to be pushing people to the LGS. And they don't give you enough. They've really hung their hat on FNM and just, hey, the products are there. But this is the era where you can get secret layers online. You can get Mythic Editions online. You can buy booster boxes on Amazon. You can pick up packs at Walmart. So if you really want the deeper experienced people that commit at the LGS level to have more reasons to go there and do their thing there and be more build the you know the friendships and social networks that keep them engaged with the game for longer i don't think it's crazy to say we're going to fix this card and you can trade them in uh, i there are a zillion reasons why they should push people to local stores more and a zillion ways to do it and i won't dispute that at all i think releasing fixed versions of cards is a major i, I i'm going to go with an an awful idea for magic i think that that is bad for the game because it it in it infringes so heavily on the on what i feel like is one of magic's greatest strength is it's essentially its legacy is this long-standing paper game and like cards that were printed exist and they're out there in the world and it is a type of permanence that nothing else has nothing else in the same play space so to have to lose that by starting to change those cards, um, I think is is breaking down a barrier that would ultimately degrade Magic's strength as a as a as a permanent thing that exists out in the world. I'm not sure I I, I see any reason to hang our hat on on that as a major as a kind of abstract virtue. But I will say this: they're going to counter argue that listen, tons of Magic is still casual. Even though 80% of Twitter is committed Magic players with many opinions, they're only 20% of the total spend and 20% of the total action, and there's still these hundreds of thousands of people or single-digit millions of people that are out there buying Magic product that if we change how Oka works and they just randomly open one in Eldraine an Eldraine pack they bought at Walmart and they're playing it at their kitchen table and they're playing against their friend and their friend has a different version. Now there's confusion and arguments and sad faces and whatever. That's all real. Like those, those are real issues, but I, I feel like the kitchen table crowd, it doesn't matter that much. Like it does a kitchen table guy really care that his card is different than the one across from him. If in that really unusual scenario comes up can't wouldn't that conversation just be fine anyway like if i was playing with somebody that casual and i had to tell them that a card worked differently than it was it read i don't think that's all that worse for them than say you know cards from the first five years of the game being out there with weird wording like interrupt on them which is going to be the case for the entire history of the game there there's a slew of challenges with you know releasing different versions of cards out into the world um, and, you know, you've touched on some of them, and I think a lot of those are, are valid and in some cases reasonably significant problems. But putting all of that aside, I think it's bad for the the legacy, the history, the brand of Magic. It's almost like a... By, refu- by never changing cards, it's sort of like the... And I a reserve list for the game's identity and that when you break it you start to change what has made magic magic for so long uh and i think it begins to regress towards something less meaningful with less history behind it 
Um, when I, now there's like three versions of this card and you're like, wait, it, it just, it just, it loses something and you, you lose something. And I don't think what you get back is worth it is really what the problem is. Is it really that different than the fact that name a card incinerate or something that there are 20 iterations on the card with different titles? Uh, yes, it, it's very different because no matter the, no matter the artwork and the frame, it's still the same card incinerates always what six mana for four damage to all, or sorry two damage two mana for three damage exile the creature right like that will not change you can have various instances of it but all incinerates are still but, played by the same rules but there are pre-exile and post-exile versions of cards for instance destroy and remove from the game versus exile is about refinement of terminology over time one can argue that random casual player that's combing through bulk boxes is going to have just much confu- as much confusion from the shifting terminology of the game over time as they would have from a prominent card being reprinted in an adjusted form. I, I can easily understand arguments on both sides, but I would try it and see. Because I think you would have a major positive response from the community if a card that they owned, that was a mythic, that they opened in packs, that got banned, was tweaked, and re-released with like full art, you know, like a sexy version, a promo version, and they get to go swap them in and play F and M. Seems like a win, 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 win. Now there are it's not that simple, but I would try it. Well, trying it is exactly the problem, is once you do that the first time, again, it's we've we've crossed a line that we have never ever crossed before. And it's one of those ones, okay. those big ones what that it, maybe we shouldn't be crossing. We, let me give you an analog. We have judge promos floating out there of Guy's Cradle and Wheel of Fortune, which were supposed to be on the reserve list, right? So, uh, yeah. So they, they crossed that line. And you could say, sure. ah, the Pandora's box is open, except they closed it. <laughs> they decided they weren't going to do that anymore. Closed it, said, nope, we don't do that any- anymore. They could try this a couple times fix a couple cards and then see how it went and it would only be it would only affect the 100,000 cards in the game along two cards and for instance and then you would get some data and some community feedback and you'd have a sense of whether that was even remotely worth pursuing on a I'm not going to I'm not going to tell you what they will or won't do I'm just saying that I think the very first time you do that it is bad for the game bad for the identity but i mean at this point we're you know we're not we're not going to make any headway and it's now been two hours and 40 minutes and we haven't gotten <laughs> yeah. to the rest of the cast so we should move on here all right so uh cap that one with just saying you and i like almost everybody else who's been invested in this game for as long as we have just want the game to be as good as it can be we want people to be happy with the formats and they play we want people to not be scared to buy cards commit to decks or formats because they think they're going to get banned out of position um so hopefully they address that in a meaningful way in designs that we probably won't see show up until midway through 2021 yes i would agree with that i think all right so cards to watch for the week we kept you on bated breath on the edge of your seat for well over an hour, as I'm sure you, some of you have skipped ahead. Uh, let me make this short and sweet. Teferi Time Raveler should be shorted on Magic Online. Uh, May 27th, War is coming back for additional drafting. 
that means that the most expensive card in the set, Teferi Time Raveler, which is currently around $40 to $42, should crash pretty hard uh, that weekend and then start to climb back up. So you should short it and then you should buy it at the low and make money in both directions. Sure. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. Uh, paper cards to watch. Golos, Tireless Pilgrim, Foils, Draining Out. Grab them at 10, sell them at 20. Probably more of an European play at that price point than in North America, where it's going to be tougher to find copies under 15. But buy list support at Card Kingdom, even now during COVID, is between 9 and 10. So well worth trying to source some of these nine to ten dollar copies in Europe. Um, it's in like two thousand reported EDH decks, but it's already pretty drained out. It sees a modicum of modern Tron play now. Some people have swapped out Karn mm. Liberateds for this card. Mm. Um, so, and I've played against Golos in a couple of weird, weird decks lately. Um, so I suspect that it's got a combination of multi, medium, moderate, uh, multi format play and some casual demand. Uh, and it's a foil from the new era of higher foil drop rates, but that's countered from it being a summer set, so it's probably a bit of a wash, and it's just not that many copies around. I mean, just the fact that the card is as popular as an EDH, uh, it's been a top EDH card for a while now, is uh is reason enough if the if that supply is starting to drain then i'm right there with you because i think you know even if it loses some traction as a commander general you know over the next six months um it'll still show up in probably every five color deck that ever gets made which isn't going to be like a lot a lot but there's definitely still going to be demand people will still keep making it as a commander even if it's not the most popular it's also got you know the additional format play no i'm i'm right there with you i think these are good choices cool what's your first pick um i'm gonna start with what i'm imagining to be my weakest of the group but i'm not positive about that it is um maelstrom wander foil eternal masters copies um, as I discovered last week, EMA is like four years old now. Uh, these are all but gone at about $30. There's like six or seven copies, maybe, if that. Um, and they've been $30. It's not like these were 15 or 20 and they got bought up and the last couple were relisted at 30 and it looks like it's about to go out of stock at 30, but in reality, it already got bought up. No, they've been at 30 for a little while. Supply's almost gone. Uh, it's in about 6,000 EDH rug decks. So it's not a, a lot of decks, but it's a, it's a three-color card, and a lot of rug decks are going to play this. Um, it's a it's a really cool card. People people do like it. Uh, I don't know when we're going to see it again. It doesn't seem like they'd be in a rush to put this back out. So I think 30 to 50 is probably a pretty safe trip here. And I know the Commander's Arsenal ones are slightly cheaper, but those are likely in roughly the same boat. Um you know, I would expect them to go from about 30-ish to 50 maybe by the end of the year, somewhere next year. This is all, getting in at such a high price point, this is all about fading Commander Legends, right? This card's interesting because it was originally Plain Chase 2012, non-foil. Got pretty expensive before a foil showed up. It was reprinted in Commander's Arsenal as a foil, but of course that foil treatment is not well regarded. Then showed up in Plain Chase Anthology, which is a short print run. So the only really major printing it's had, especially in foil, was Eternal Masters. So, mm -hmm. And the Eternal Masters art is better. Um, so these are the go-to foil if you want the card. 
$30 foil mythics don't really excite me, but it's not impossible for this to go 30 to 40 or 50 just because there's so few left. It's just about how long it can fade the reprint. Now, one of the places this could catch a reprint would be in a new mystery booster assortment next year, which could also hurt pretty hard because the the foils are essentially mythics and not mythic foils. So there's a couple of risks six months plus out, but in the interim, you're probably just fine. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't see them rushing back to the well to reprint this. Um I'm not going to say it can't happen. It's just not something that I would think would be high on their list. But I agree that a reprint would be pretty brutal. I also don't know if they're doing mystery boosters next year. And given that they wouldn't have sent mystery boosters to the printers yet, even if they had one on tap for next year, I kind of would expect them to have pulled that by now. Yeah, I think there's a very good chance that Mystery Booster Part 2 was happening next year. I had a suspicion that it would be only a partial resetting of the set list. Like, I thought they might swap out a bunch of cards, but keep the bulk of them or a big chunk of them the same, kind of like updating a cube. But, as you say, with COVID, these this is exactly the kind of product mix where they probably have them on the back burner. Like, will we or won't we? We need more information What's our contingencies here? Are we going to launch a whole bunch of extra secret layers instead? How are we going to make sure that the third parties that handle a lot of... Like, one of the problems here is that Hasbro doesn't have a lot of control over their distribution. Because, and I encountered this on the toy side with Hasbro years before I gave... I was very deep into Magic Finance. Um, They outsource almost everything. They're like Nike that way. So... A lot of the, you know, the handling of secret layers and how quickly they get sent out. For instance, the Godzilla lands that got ordered last week. People might not see those till July, August, September. Who knows? It completely depends on when the warehouse that they work with as a third party is back to work and capable of supporting that process. Mm-hmm. So, and- which... I was, which all makes it, to me, that much more likely that they would be reluctant to pull the trigger on another mystery booster product next year when they don't know anything about how any of that's going to go. Yeah. So it's a strong card. It needs to fade a reprint. If it does, it's it's probably going to keep pushing. Yeah. And like I said, it was probably my least exciting one of the week, but okay. What's your second pick? Pretty sure we talked about this already last summer when it was announced. I feel like this would have been a June or July pick last year, but it's worth flagging at this point again ella domri's call foils at a modern horizons to go to five from five to ten it's a sixteen thousand reported decks on edh rec kind of card it's a tutor for any creature also playable modern so it's a pretty broad profile card across two major formats foils are not anywhere near being super drained but they are steadily eroding and the ramp is real. So I see no reason to hold off on this at this point. This a year ago, significantly weaker. It might have been like an $8 card out of the gate. Now we're a year further down the road. It's 3 bucks cheaper and people have stopped opening the set. Might have been wrong the first time, but it's right now. Yeah, I think Modern Horizons is probably right about in the, the place where you want to be taking a serious look at, at a lot of these types of cards, which were, you know, took kind of a beating when they came out. Um, but we're, we knew had a good future on them. Um, somewhere between now and like six months to a year from now are probably right on these. And a lot of Marie's call, I think is, is right in that wheelhouse. Uh, 
obviously an obscenely popular card. Price has gotten dirt cheap on them. People are going to keep playing this card. I, if, you, if you picked, is it likely that a green white tutor will ever be printed that's better than a lot of Maurice calls? <laughs> Probably no. Yeah. Uh, that card is pretty powerful for what it does. So I, I think this is going to be an EDH staple for a long, long time. This next one, I know I've picked at some point along the way here too. So I'm not gonna you're not gonna get much argument from me. You want to break this one down? Yeah. Well, you know, to be fair, I I did not search through the spreadsheet to see if you had already picked it. So my apologies if this was more recent than I remember it, than I remember it being. But uh, foil soul herders are floating around nine bucks right now. This is the blue white creature from Modern Horizons that flickers stuff and gets a plus one plus one counter when you do. Um, it is in about 4,000 EDA truck decks right now. It's also seen play, as we know, in like Modern Horizons or in Modern and a couple other odds and ends here and there. But there are 24 vendors left on TCG right now, and only about 10 of those people are selling cards below, selling copies below $10. So I think, you know, I left this at 15. This must be 15. I think you can get in on these right now at eight, nine, ten dollars $10 and probably ride these up to 18 to 20 or so. Um, hopefully this year, I think. Uh, assuming people continue to buy magic cards, but based on, you know, the inventory right now and, and the, the price point, I think you're in pretty good shape on this guy. And I don't see this getting a reprint too soon. Um, again, because this was in modern horizons, I, it seems unlikely that we would see another one already. There was a deck floating around like tier two with soul herders that Tom Ross was popularizing last year, I think. And with Yorion in the mix, <laughs> The stock mm-hmm. for the card only goes up. Um, Yorion leaves. Yorion getting banned in modern seems like a stretch to me. So feel oh, like nah. so feels like this has nowhere to go but up. Even if it was only an EDH legal card, I'd still be into it. Given that it has some potential in modern to, you know, have some time to shine at some point in the future. And given what the really the most compelling part of this argument is what the ramp looks like right now. Very few $10 copies. I'm guessing I can get some in Europe for like six to nine or something. And then it scales up real quick to up towards 20. The stage is set. These are going to get drained. It's just a question of whether it happens now, next week, next month, whatever. Okay, cool. Glad to hear you're on the same page. What's um, your last one? Uh, D-Spark out of War of the Spark. Um, one of many uh, powerhouse EDH rec cards, uh, 10,000 reported decks on that site, EDH staple, alongside many other kill spells. It's not that it's hyper unique or anything, but it exiles a permanent forecasting cost or greater, which is almost always useful in the format. Uh, foils are currently four bucks. It's uh, uncommon, if I'm not mistaken, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Right, so $4 uncommon already headed for uphill for 10 to 12 to 15 over some period of time. It's the kind of card they're going to reprint again. In fact, I think it already got a reprinting in Commander 2020, if I'm not mistaken. It's in the most recent decks that are just coming out this week, but that's a non-foil. So what are the odds they're going to reach out to try to reprint this again anytime soon? Probably pretty low. Yeah, this card is, I, I was surprised to see this. I remember, um, I don't remember what we were doing, but I found this. 
And I was like, wait, this card is that popular? Like I didn't even barely even register that this was printed. And then suddenly it was doing really well in EDH. Um, so I do remember having been surprised by that. Still true. Still a very popular card, obviously. Uh, 10,000 decks already is, is quite impressive for War of the Spark. The cassette's not that old. Um, and $4 for the foils is a great buy-in. I think you probably only have to fade a reprint on this for less than a year before you get to your mark. Might even be sooner than that, really. Uh, so I, I think I think this will get reprinted. Uh, the, the likelihood that it gets reprinted in non-foil is pretty high. And then, you know... Well, I mean, that just happened, so... Right, and like they could keep doing it, and you're going to keep dodging it. And even if it gets reprinted in foil, I don't think that's going to happen this year, which is probably about all the time you need. Yeah. All right, what about you? Final pick. Uh, wrapping up with Lotus Cobras, actually. Uh, it, um, oh, God. Ic- Iconic Masters, that's what that is. The foils from Iconic Masters sitting at about $15 right now. There's less than 10 copies, less than 10 foil IMA copies uh tcg zendikar's in basically the same boat uh right around 15 dollars or so their lotus cobra's in about eleven thousand eda truck decks so pretty solid number there the gp promos just under 30 just about there and that's almost out too so it looks like lotus cobra's across the board are about ready to tip over into a nice little double up i could see Honestly, IMA and Zendikar pack. I could see IMA foils probably hitting 25 to 30. I could see Zendikar pack foils hitting 35 to 40. GPs maybe 40 to 50. It's hard to say for sure, but I do think that across the board, prices on foil Lotus Cobras are going to move this year. This is probably the Therese Nielsen card I am most upset that had there is oh, yeah. political problems with owning because it is I forgot about that. undeniably beautiful art. And I'm not actually. Oh, the the promo, right? Yeah, right, right. the grunt. Gr- is it the is Zendikar chippy? Uh, that sounds right. Yeah, it's chippy. So chippy's cool. The, the Zendikar is <laughs> fine. The Grand Prix po- promo is. I'm not even a fan of Chase Nielsen's art, to be honest. But this one, love it. This it is beautiful. Um. So yeah, there's not that many Lotus Cobras around. It's always good in EDH. It could will catch a reprint at some point. Like this is the kind of card that could show up in that green commander cards set that's coming out in a couple months. Yeah. yeah. I did think about that, but like it's popular in EDH, obviously eleven thousand, but it's also not like a quote unquote EDH card. Right? I like it's not I a top really of mind of- it's not a top of mind card despite how useful it is. Right. So, it, I mean, that's not to say that Wizards won't go that route, but it just doesn't seem like it would be one of their first picks. There's, because it's the year of Commander, there are literally hundreds of cards that could catch a reprint that will spike hard if they don't. <laughs> that will be on a, or not even spike hard so much as show consistent drain and pressuring up to higher and higher plateaus the longer they fade the reprint. So, if you get like any four or five specs like this, and you fade the reprint on four out of the five, you're going to be fine. Yeah. And one thing we hadn't really talked about so far was the fact that people are going to be ready to make a jump on EDH cards that don't get reprinted. So as spoilers come out and people don't see specific cards, you're going to be making a jump on all those ones that didn't show up. Whether they should or not is beside the point. People are going to do it. Uh so 
you know, cards like Lotus Cobra could fall over as enterprising individuals go, Lotus Cobra wasn't in there. We should go buy a bunch of them. And like, right decision, wrong decision. I'm not telling you, but uh, people could make that the point of doing that. It's worth pointing out that Lotus Cobra started as a mythic in Zendikar and was downgraded to rare in Iconic Masters and is probably likely to stay rare. So if it gets printed, reprinted in a set with a high print run and a high foil drop rate, something like a Commander Legends, then the foils will certainly be under pressure. Um, but we'll see. Yep, it, I agree it, it with that. It could easily fade the reprint. Yes, yeah. It's not high. I wouldn't expect it to, but uh, maybe. And if it ended up in Mystery Boosters as a foil, it would be a Mythic. So it would be back to a... <laughs> it wouldn't be much worse than being a foil rare in Commander Legends. Right. All right. That's a um, pretty solid crop. I think people got some options this week. Me too. Should probably wrap this up before you fall asleep. Yeah, right. Uh, well, I mean, I don't really do that anymore in COVID times, but <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, all right. So I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, where I am every week. Uh, how about you? You guys can find me on Twitter at MGG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MGGPrice.com. Well, not really weekly, but occasional. And you can definitely find me haunting the Pro Trader discords more or less constantly. Okay. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Uh, again, I'll remind people that we are helping folks that need to sell cards. If you want us to echo something for you, just ping us uh, at MDG Price on Twitter, and we will get that pumped out to about 5,000 accounts for you. Also, if you are interested in checking out the ProTrader service but can't afford the full freight at present due to the COVID situation, we're certainly willing to negotiate and help everybody out. Uh, tell us about our sponsor, our lovely sponsor. Well, our sponsor, who I was just checking out today, uh, is Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. I thought this week's episode 219 was quite good. I think we had a really good discussion there in the middle. Hopefully somebody cares about it. Um, I enjoyed it, and I will see you next week. Yeah, if, if you like us rambling for two hours on topics that we probably should have put to bed in half an hour, this week's for you. Thank you, Travis, and we'll see all you all y'all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. <laughs>